7: Time. And the
8: living is easy Fish are jumping
9: And the cotton is high
10: Jazz legend Sarah Vaughan sang and scattered with the best of bebop's golden age She made music with giants. Earl Hines, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, Count Basie. Audiences adored her. She scored big hits through the 50s, became a true symphonic diva in the twilight of her career, with sweeping numbers featuring lush orchestrations. She was an icon for women's and civil rights during the turbulent Jim Crow era. This hour on point, the life and music of sassy Sarah Vaughan. Joining me now from Seattle, Washington, is Elaine Hayes, an author and jazz historian. She's out with a new biography called Queen of Bebop, The Musical Lives of Sarah Vaughan. You can read an excerpt on our website, onpointradio.org. Elaine Hayes, welcome to On Point.
11: Thank you for having me.
10: There has never perhaps been a more astonishing singer, writes one of our online posters. Seemingly effortless musicality in every note. Looking forward to this program. Well, we're glad we can bring it to you. (laughs) We should talk a little bit about race and the role it played both in the early days when uh, Sarah Vaughan was touring with some of the great jazz combos of the time through a still segregated South, and also the role it played when promoting and marketing musicians later in her career in the 1950s and 60s. It sounded like... uh, Touring through clubs in the South in the late forties and early fifties is a pretty harrowing experience.
11: Yeah, um, black musicians were going, especially when they were accustomed being in the North. Going down South, they were expen- experiencing the full force of Jim Crow. And Sarah Vaughan, and um, when she was with the Dizzy or the Billy he- Eckstein band and the Earl Hines band, encountered some really unfortunate, kind of scary situations. One that comes to mind is. Uh, she, she was, the Eckstein band was playing an outside venue and the Ku Klux Klan shows up and they're in their robes and they have shotguns that they're shooting into the air and the band runs to their bus. And as they are driving out of town on main street, the Ku Klux Klan is actually lined up along main street and is shooting at the, the bus as they're leaving. And the only way the band kind of survives this is by getting down on the floor. Um, but there were also other, uh, more subtle forms of racism, Sarah Vaughan would often say that, you know, at least they're honest in the South. They don't like color people and Jews. But in the North, you know, that's just one of the, mo- the worst places ever. And I feel like another story that kind of demonstrates that is a couple of years later in 1948, her career is starting to, it's on the rise. Um, she's been crowned the divine one by the DJ Dave Garraway. And she's gotten a gig at the Fairmont Hotel in Philadelphia and um, her name is on the marquee, the divine Sarah Vaughan singing this week. And she walks into the hotel, carrying her suitcase, goes up to the front desk and says, hi, I know I'm Sarah Vaughan. And they say, oh, great. We're so glad you're here. We're really looking forward to your performances this week. Here's the bellboy. He'll show you where you're going to sleep. So the bellboy takes her her bag and proceeds to walk downstairs to the basement of the of the hotel through the bowels of the hotel they're passing the kitchen and the laundry room and the and the, and then they make their way back to a a locker room with a, an army cot in the middle and the bellboy says oh that that's for you and she turns to him and looks at him and pauses and says follow me and she walks and retraces her steps walks back upstairs out the front door of the Fairmont across the street to a the hotel across the street and books herself into the penthouse and confess that basically she spent all the money she earned at the Fairmont t- in order to be able to stay at the penthouse, but she was determined that she was not going to be treated with disrespect.
10: There were attempts also to uh, force her, shoehorn her, you might even say, into um, singing various black styles, vernacular styles, or Mm -hmm. pigeonholing her in that way and saying, you should sing this because, well, because you're a black American.
11: Yeah, this was especially the case early on in her career. There's a story where she talks about, um, in 1946, she's, you know, just started out as a solo act. She's kind of struggling. And a very influential producer named John Hammond says, hey, you know, I'll make you the next Bessie Smith. And she didn't want to be, you know, a blues singer. And she says, no, no, I don't want to do that. And um, he was angry about it. But she later said that, you know, lots of people think that because I'm black, I should sing the blues. And this made her angry. Um, She understood that there were a lot of um, kind of connotations that came with the blues. Um, It was often viewed as the music of the South, more rural, more primitive, um, intuitive way of speaking performing, and that black. this is how black people sounded. This is what they should sing. But early on and throughout her entire career, she wanted to create a different kind of music. She wanted to create a music that was her own, but also a music that was intellectual and very sophisticated and harmonically, rhythmically, um, just a different kind of music that didn't fit into those stereotypes. She wanted to create another way to hear what a black female voice could sound like.
10: And she didn't want to be... Ma Rainey, she wanted to be Sarah Vaughn.
11: Yeah, she wanted to be herself. And that's one of the themes that runs throughout her entire career, that she's often has these external forces pressing up against her, be it a record producer, sometimes a husband or manager, um, or even a club owner saying, we want you to do this. And she pushes back and she says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be myself. Our next stop
10: this hour is Green, Maine, where Lou is standing by. Lou, welcome to the program.
9: Thank you, Elaine. Thank you, Ray. Um, I'll let other people describe the magnificence of this woman's voice, which still thrills me. I'd just like to describe her persona on stage. I had the opportunity of seeing her in one of her final concerts, an outdoor concert, uh in New Hampshire. And uh she filled the entire uh arena. But uh The most magical moment that I think is a good insight into her personality is when she first came out, she was wearing this huge tent of a gown with gigantic flowers on it. And the audience was so stunned because she looked absolutely magnificently beautiful. And she went to the microphone and she said, yes, now I look like Lena Horne, but by the end of this concert, I'm going to look like Sarah Vaughan because she she perspired so profusely. But the evening was absolutely magical. I'll never forget it. And she still thrills me with her music.
10: Lou, thanks a lot for sharing that memory. And I'm glad you told that story, because what Sarah Vaughn looks like comes up again and again in your story, Elaine Hayes. And why why is that so critical?
11: Well, when she began her career, she was a very young woman. And like many young performers, she needed to work on kind of Updating and glamorizing her look, and this was a pretty normal process, but and especially as she was getting on bigger record labels, she needed to become a little bit more mainstream-looking and kind of hip and glamorous. Um, one of the reasons why Sarah Vaughan's looks are so central to the way we often tell her story is that in the early 1950s, her first husband basically created this elaborate marketing campaign called Sarah and her Pygmalion, where her husband was the Svengali who basically was in charge of creating this woman that we see today. You know, he made her over from an ugly duckling into a beautiful swan. So this idea of, you know, she used to be ugly and now she was pretty is, I think, in a large part a marketing campaign, but it does point to some issues where Sarah maybe wasn't always as secure about how she looked. And the comments about, I coming on stage and I look like Lena Horne and I come off looking like Sarah Vaughn, first of all, it makes me sad when I hear that. But it points to what some of the very high beauty standards there were for women performers during these, this age.
10: You know, it it is also, I think it speaks to uh, the difficulties that black women trying to go mainstream may have faced when it came to their hair uh when it came to whether you were dark skinned or light skinned mm-hmm. um, a lot it's it's complicated for any woman singer and just recently i was talking with Linda Ronstadt about this very thing um who i think you know probably a lot of people think of as kind of a glamour puss a obviously beautiful woman uh but how much emphasis there was from the label, from the promoters, from the people who made the record covers, the jackets for albums, uh, to emphasize physical beauty. Uh, its Aesthetics may change over time, and I, I was trying not to look at these pictures, and the book incidentally has a great many wonderful pictures. I was trying not to th- be a 2017 man looking <laughs> at this, but There's some early photos where uh, she's quite young and the line of her jaw and her head is thrown back where she's hitting a note. And it's a beautiful photo. And I thought at the same time, there were probably a lot of Americans who just wouldn't think of this person as a beautiful person.
11: Yeah. So when I look at those pictures, too, I think she's adorable. But also she is a striking beauty. But we need to remember that then Perhaps more so than now, really, the standard of beauty was kind of blonde, blue eyed, thin woman. And as a black woman, it's, you know, you just can't achieve that. So there really was a lot of emphasis on, like I said, streamlining this look and kind of trying, t- telling a story that made it seem that she was more normalized, that, oh, yeah, she kind of fits into this, these mainstream standards. Of but beauty. it's
10: interesting that talent doesn't trump that necessarily. Our next stop, Valrico, Florida, where Bob is standing by. Bob, welcome to On Point.
12: Hi, Ray. How you doing? I just wanted to say uh, you're talking to an 85-year-old white guy that was first introduced to Sarah Vaughn when I was in the military in in Korea. Some uh, disc jockey, in his wisdom, started playing her tunes, and we fell in love with her. We didn't care whether she was black, green, or yellow, or whatever. She was an entertainer. She had a velvet voice. She knew how to sing. And and I I don't believe this story about she had such a hard time. Nobody looked at her as color. They looked at her as an entertainer, and she was a magician. And, and we all fell in love with her, and I love her to this day. I listen to her music. And they don't come any better. Thank you, Ray.
13: Little brother, I heard y'all ain't hittin' in New York. Word. I heard y'all ain't hittin' in L.A. Word, word. I heard
2: y'all ain't hittin' in North Carolina.
8: Eddie and Dorothy Wise are African-American couple who wanted to live closer to the land. Eddie comes from three generations of farmers. So together, he and his wife dreamed of raising hogs on their own plot of land in North Carolina. And in the early 90s, they took the first step to realizing that dream— What followed is what Eddie describes as more than two decades of systemic racism by North Carolina's branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Farm Service Agency. Now, those are the people who are supposed to help farmers get loans and plan a profitable farm. At every turn, Eddie and Dorothy saw their farm loans delayed or denied, and it all culminated when they were evicted from their land in 2016. Reporter John B. Wynn captured the Wise's story for Reveal, a radio program and podcast for the Center for Investigative Reporting. Otherwise, John is a producer for the podcast Seen on Radio from Duke Center for Documentary Studies. And he joins us now. Welcome, John. Good to talk with us. Good to be back, Frank. Um, it is it is good to have you here. John, uh, Eddie Wise is on his way. And so hopefully <laughs> we're going to have him here if all works out well. But let me ask you. Um, to maybe to maybe summarize this story, because Eddie and his wife had was not a farmer, he decided to go back to the land, so tell us about that decision for him
0: right so he had he his uh, father, grandfather, and great grandfather were all sharecroppers, and he grew up working on uh, helping them on the farms and so on, but he was determined to own a farm, not to work for somebody else, as he put it, and so he went and had a military career he was a green beret and uh, Vietnam and so on, and he taught uh, in the ROTC programs at Howard University in Georgetown. Anyway, thirty years later, he is ready to buy a farm, and finds a hundred-acre farm in Nash County near Rocky Mount. And he and his wife uh, Dorothy buy this place in or try, set out to buy it in 1991. It took them five years and un and relentless fighting through what they describe as um, relentless obstruction by the loan officer
8: in Nash County. Now talk about this because it's kind of a two-step process. First thing you have to do is get a loan for the property, for the land, right?
0: Right. So so as it, so as every step. So go in and ask for an application for a loan. Well, we don't have any applications. Uh, really? You don't have an application? Well, so Eddie goes and finds an application, Uh Bring it in. Will you help me fill this out? Which they are supposed to do by law. Uh, no, I won't help you fill it out. I'm sure you can do it. Eddie finds somebody to help him fill it out. Well, here's what's wrong with your application. You don't have good credit. You don't have this, that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Just relentlessly pushing through this resistance until finally the loan was approved. Then they get an operating loan also, they so they buy the land, they get an operating loan to get started. There's some repairs that are needed in the hog buildings on the farm. That loan is delayed, the operating loan is delayed, causing, after they've committed to buying hogs, so they get hogs in the buildings, the buildings aren't weather, weatherized, They're, almost their entire herd freezes to death in the first winter in 1997-98.
8: And, and here's Eddie Wise now talking about that and the need to get that loan in a timely way, a loan that he would have expected under normal circumstances uh, would have been approved. And so he was moving forward with this land because obviously the longer it takes you to get crops in the ground, or in this case those pigs, to market, you're paying interest on the first loan. You've got to get things moving. He gets it moving, but they stall the loan, and here's what happens. He drugged the loan process out for seven
0: damn months. Eddie had to call off the repairs, but he had already committed to picking up his hogs. So by the time we got ready to bring them home in September,
14: them was already pregnant. And I had nothing but an open building with nothing but concrete floors. There were no curtains. And I had got some rolls of plastic and, you know, tried to put up, makeshift sure curtains to break the wind from blowing in there.
0: Winter nights in North
14: Carolina often dip below freezing. Newborn pig comes out at 90 degrees, and he hits a concrete floor, and you're talking about about four or five minutes before he's dead. I lost, I had a little over 400 pigs to freeze to death.
8: That's Eddie Wise talking uh, on a documentary radio program, the podcast Revealed from the Center for Investigative Reporting, and I'm speaking with the reporter John Bewin, who produced that episode with farmer Eddie Wise, uh, who is featured in the story. All right, let's take a step back, John, because historically racism has played, uh, you know, an uh, an important part in, in African-American farmers. And it goes way back. And finally, in the 1990s, uh, this, this stuff was finally exposed. But it had been going on for a long time. Tell us about the history of this.
0: Right. So there was a major lawsuit filed by a North Carolina farmer named Timothy Pigford in the 90s that resulted in – uh, a major class action lawsuit that was settled and it was found that there was sy- systemic discrimination um throughout now it tended to be in the south but that's because that's where the black farmers are and were um and that basically this kind of thing that Eddie faced was 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 systemic uh, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, at least that's what was documented in the in the lawsuit.
8: And it had been going on really since after the Civil War, 40 acres sure. and a mule. And what had happened, of course, was that the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, administered this, but it allowed local counties to do the administration. And so, so they were the ones they were the point of contact, and it was their culture and their ideas about who should and who should not get loan that historically have driven these decisions, I mean, here's Eddie talking about uh, the the efforts that he had just to w- w- in his encounters with these loan officers.
14: The goodable net had an unwritten system. If you walked in the f h a and you were black, the first thing they did was close the books and they said no to anything that you asked from that point on. They said it didn't have applications. If you got the application. They wouldn't tell you how to fill it out. And then when you finally got it filled out and turned into them, then they hit you, oops, we're out of money.
8: That's an excerpt from the episode of the radio program and podcast Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. And I'm speaking, that was Eddie Wise, and I'm talking with John Bewin, who is the reporter on this. So so how much of this, again, was And he runs into and finally finds a, a, a supporter and someone who can help him, someone in the person of Carl Bond. Tell us about Carl.
0: Carl Bond worked for 32 years for the Farm Service Agency in North Carolina. That's the, the what it's called the branch of the USDA that does this business of uh, providing loans for farmers. And Carl was uh, for many years the only African-American loan officer in the state. And Eddie found him when he was having trouble uh, dealing with a white loan officer. This, this is back in the 90s. And Carl helped him get through that process of of getting his application filled out, eventually getting a loan. And then later, because the problems persisted, a state director who was uh, a Clinton appointee just took uh, Eddie's uh, the wisest loan away from the white loan officer and had Carl service it and work with him and worked with him for about a dozen years to keep uh, to keep him to service the loan extend, ease the terms and so on and keep them on the farm
8: well and again I want to take a step back and talk about why this hadn't been I mean again this lawsuit is won in the 1990s it had been going on for decades and decades um why weren't things cleaned up once, once you have the lawsuit and you have demonstrated that racism is at the heart of all of this? Uh, why didn't things get cleaned up then? Well, it's, it's – uh, I mean, basically, as far as we can tell,
0: there, nobody was fired. There was no real clean, uh, effort to clean house in the USDA. There's messages, and we have heard from people that under the Clinton administration and then under Obama – that the message from on, from Washington on high was you know we treat everybody the same uh, and that there were some concrete efforts made to try to train folks and so on in the county offices so that they would and to put in some checks and balances and so on but as tom vilsack who was the secretary of agriculture under clinton under obama as he told me and an african american uh, manager in the north carolina system for many years said the same thing and that is when you have a decentralized system like that mm. You have human beings, and, of course,
8: there's still discrimination. Right, because the local culture is what prevails. Here's Carl Bond, who who was helping Eddie Wise out, the the African-American officer who who worked with Eddie, just talking about some of the irregularities that he spotted and trying to help Eddie through the process.
15: Uh, He came to my office. He said, uh, would you assist me with this application? I said, well, yes. I said, but didn't you ask the loan officer that you got it from? He said, yes. We asked him. He said, you know, we, you are a retired officer from the United States Army. Y'all should be able to do it. Is that a normal thing for a loan officer to say, to decline to help a farmer looking for a loan? No, We was required and still is required that if a farmer needs assistance to help them
8: fill
6: out the forms,
8: That's Carl Bond, a former farm loan officer with USDA's Farm Service Agency. An excerpt from the radio program and podcast Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. I'm talking with reporter John Bewin about this story. There were other irregularities, including doctored documents that you discovered along the way. Well,
0: yes, and what appears to be, yes, there's a, a – and this is, it comes forward now. Long after the Pigford black farmer settlement, we're talking the 20-teens here, mm-hmm. uh, and what led to the Wise's uh, foreclosure and eviction from their farm uh, was that their loan, ultimately their application for continued loan servicing was declined. And there's a there's a um a document that we found in their file in which Carl Bond helping them with the farm plan had written out the numbers. Here's how many how many sows they have, they're gonna produce this many piglets per litter, it's gonna result in this number of cows they're gonna or sows pigs, they're gonna be slaughtered and bring in this amount of money. And someone went in and changed the number, apparently. Carl had written ten piglets per litter. Somebody wrote under that eight. And that seemed to be an explanation for how their their application was initially approved by the computer, and then mm. and then denied.
8: And they found this through a lot of persistence. I mean, Eddie is working hard. He's trying to he's trying to run a farm as well, and he's having to put. So let's let's put some names to this. The loan officer who uh, refused to help Eddie in the first place, and then said his name is Sidney Long. Yes, is he still around? He's still around. I spoke with him
0: briefly on the phone. Uh, that's probably about a year ago, and he simply said, I'm not going to talk to you about
8: that. Now, what about Paula Nichols? What's her role in
0: She this? is currently the uh, farm loan chief for the FSA in the state of North Carolina. She was the loan officer who took over after Carl Bond retired in 2011, and he'd been working with the Wises for a dozen years. He retired, and she was the new loan officer who took over for him. It was during – in working with Paula Nichols then that things went south again, and um, the loan application was – denied and they were ultimately foreclosed
8: as a result of the doctor documents what about that is there so so is there any action that eddie can take based on on that
0: they have a lawsuit pending in the Hmm. court of federal claims and a um uh but i'm not sure that it even addresses directly those kinds of things i it's it's I'm, i'm not clear on that honestly
8: meanwhile last year it all came to uh to ruin um eddie ultimately was evicted right yes Let's listen, because you were there when the eviction was taking place. The marshals walk onto Eddie's land, they give him the bad news, and you were there uh, when it was happening. Let's listen.
0: And here they come around that curve. White SUVs and squad cars, seven vehicles in all. Officers spill out. I count 14 men and women, mostly U.S. marshals with a few county deputies as backup. Some of the marshals carry semi-automatic rifles.
14: Come on down. Why are you doing this morning, sir? My dogs don't bite, sir. I said my dogs don't
0: bite. <laughs> the U.S. marshal, the leader of the operation, approaches Eddie and presents the papers.
9: Deputy Coney, with the Marshal Service, you obviously know what's going on. Okay. I know you all. okay Yes, sir. There's a, forecl- there's a foreclosure judgment has
16: been issued against you and a seizure orderment. So we're going to have to remove you from your residence this morning, and there are certain items going to be taken. Okay. Well, wife- my wife is sick. Okay. Well, you are going to have to work with you and give you a reasonable amount of time, but you are going to have to get your wife and, and vacate the premises this morning, sir. Okay. And there's items we're going to be seizing on your property. There's a full list in here, and this copy is for you.
8: That's an excerpt from an episode of the radio program and podcast reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting. I'm talking with reporter John B. That was Eddie Wise, who is featured in that report, who lost his farm after... Uh, systematically being denied or having his loans delayed for his farm in North Carolina so what did he lose they had a 106 acre uh farm and it had uh <clears throat> he raised
0: <clears throat> excuse me he raised some um you know there were some fields and a big garden and but it was you know primarily about the hog buildings and so on um and their uh uh, uh mobile home and uh and weirdly three dogs that Eddie had had since they were puppies that were pets, and the marshals took those too,
8: they uh, talked about his wife being sick talk to talk about Eddie's wife
0: Yes, she um had diabetes uh already at this time and was uh kind of needed a wheelchair to to move, and so that when they were evicted from the farm, they needed you know to sort of assist her. Her health has since gotten worse. Um, she had both of her legs amputated, um, I think it was last
8: fall and she's
0: in a in a nursing home now in uh,
8: Rocky Mount. How much of this the eviction, the loss of his farm is due to the fact that these loans were were delayed.
0: Well, the initial hole that they got in from the story we heard earlier about lost all the pigs. losing yeah. virtually the whole herd at the, in the very first year of operation was a, it was a hole they never really dug out of and they were trying to kind of scrape back and he he had no more additional loans with which to buy a new herd of hogs. So he's basically trying to breed, trying to you know find friends who would sell him a few hogs cheap, that kind of thing. And gradually had a herd. He had 250 hogs. I had, uh, in, that's how I met them. Was 2008 and nine. I did a five-hour radio series called Five Farms, in which they were one of the farmers I documented. They had 250 hogs then, and they were making some money. But that's a pretty tiny. A hog operation. And
8: um, and they've got a lot of debt. I mean, there are still loans. That exactly. They're, off, they're right? trying yeah. to
0: have to pay their debt. Right. And they had off farm income. Fortunately, he's a retired, he has an army pension. Dorothy had a pension from her career at Howard University. They had social security checks. If not for that, they, you know, so they were sort of gentleman farmers in a, in a way, yeah. you know, supporting their farming habit. But they gradually were getting to where they were making some money. And they were ma- they made some payments on the loans, although just basically interest or even parts of the interest. So their loan actually got bigger over the years. Um, Carl was helping. Carl Bond was keeping them going. But when the uh, when he retired, basically, folks seemed to decide that well, enough of that. Party's over. <laughs>
2: One a farm in particular used to put people in in oil drums, and after they've been dumped in oil drums, beat them up with a sambok, which are plastic.
4: Oh, thing. a whip, basically. A whip, basically. Nico Jansen, farm manager.
5: The oldest house on the farm uh, dates from before 1690. In the 1680s census, there were already two settlers here, two European hunters, hunting in our river for hippopotami and elephants, <laughs> of which, of course, there are none left. Mark Solms, farm owner. I told him I don't trust white people at all. So you know, this in this room, what you have to remember is that this house was built by slaves. This is the ship that brought my ancestors here.
4: Mark is a sixth-generation South African who began investing in this farm seventeen years ago.
5: There was this ship, the Arab, which I knew my ancestors had come on the Arab. I thought the Arab is is in it sank in Table Bay.
4: Nico comes from a long line of farm and domestic labourers in the Cape Winelands.
2: People have to work from sunrise to sunset. And how, if you are a, a wife and a woman, how would you feel if your family could only start eating 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the evening because you have to stop prepare food for them?
5: So it's under, underneath the city of Cape Town is, is the ship that brought my ancestors here. Mm. This valley, which is now called French Hook, French Quarter, was called Uli Fonsuk, Elephant's Quarter. It's so sad. I mean, everything about South Africa is just excruciatingly painful, in layers upon layers.
4: Everybody I meet on this farm calls Mark Prof or the professor. Nico
5: sold nursery
4: plants on the farm before Mark took it over. Our first winemaker
2: was, he was German, but he was a boor, like in the Afrikaans sense, a Boer. So one of the things he said to the professor was, Listen, I don't like the idea that Nichols people doesn't work even on weekends and stop working so early. And then when Professor talked to me about it, I said to him, Listen, that's exactly what I want to stop. I want to stop the slavery system.
5: It's an historic farm. It was established as a farm in 1690. So it dates the occupation by colonists. It was one of those places where the trouble began, the taking of the land is actually the essence of what colonisation is about. And remarkably, all these years later and all these years after the end of apartheid, the land is still pretty much in the same hands.
4: I'm Audrey Brown reporting for the BBC World Service, and it is beautiful here, on this farm, with its tragic layers. Nico takes me for a stroll on a late summer afternoon after the harvest. Okay, what, what happens is there... Are there things...
2: Snakes... Yeah, there's snakes and uh, two familiar snakes, which are most of the most serious uh, snakes. Is we got the Cape Cobra huh? and the no. puff adder. Seriously, yeah. Seriously? yeah? Seriously, I on the farm. Wow. Yeah, and the have you bits. have
4: you found have you found them yeah, on this lots, farm lots, already? Lots. Have lots, people been
2: bitten? Hundreds. Not no, No, our people are very clever.
4: Okay, let's and, check uh, it out.
2: Avoid being bitten, but okay. it could happen
4: any time. Okay, well, so I better far. be one of your clever people eh, and not get bitten. <laughs> OK. All right, let's stand here. Yeah. I said, now, I'm, I must just explain to BBC World Service listeners, I'm standing in the middle of a vineyard, surrounded by mountains, the mountains Pictures that... mountains. Picturesque mountains. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is called The Lady on Her Back, the other one is called Devil's Tooth, and the other one is called Breasts, and if you saw them, you'll see exactly what people mean when they call them those, because it's so obvious. <laughs>
5: <laughs> There's laughter here, but bitter inequality... The essence of the problem, obviously, is the ownership of the land. How can you infuse your serfs in the project to transform your farm? The problem is I own the land. I own the land because my forebears stole it. And uh, the farm workers who live there, who are my responsibility, my patriarchal responsibility, are there because their land was stolen from them or because they were yanked there from foreign parts as slaves and uh, they were just deposited there by history. So on my land, I own it because of that history. They own nothing because of that history. How are you going to fix it? Well, you know, you've got to give the land back.
4: So far, so obvious. Just give back the land. But can Mark bring himself to
5: do it? After all... I said to myself things like, well, it wasn't me who took the land. Who do I give it to? Some symbolic bushman. Or do we divide it up so that each family gets a little piece? And then I told myself, what about food security if we do that, forgetting, of course, that it's a wine farm? What I was doing was making excuses, not least of them and the most practical of them was, well, their farm workers don't know how to run a farm. If I was to give the farm to them, it would end in tears. you know. But those are excuses. I really mean it when I say that morally there's no question about it but that the land should be given back. And I finally came to the realization, and I'm not proud uh, to say this to you at all, but it is the truth. I came to the realization I don't want to. You know, for for reasons of my own self-interest, despite knowing the history, despite facing all of those historical facts, there were three crimes against humanity. You know, the stealing of the land, slavery and apartheid, all committed on my farm. And knowing all of that, I wasn't able to do the right thing. If morals were the only consideration, that is the right thing to do. You know, if you have stolen goods, you, you can't keep them. And if you really want to rectify what's wrong in South Africa still today, I mean, and let me make it plain, what's wrong still today is that the perpetrators of apartheid have kept the spoils.
4: No, he can't do it. But he does decide to be a good farmer, better than so many who've come before him. So what was it like to live and work on a farm before 1994? Then the farmers were very bossy and
2: controlling. You just had to do what you were told. If you made one wrong move, they chased you away quickly. And then you had to find other work. They're not as rude and high-handed as they used to be. When we first came here, farmers on all these farms used to force people to do work in the rain. They gave you a skimpy raincoat to work in, and you'd work all day cleaning drains and furrows.
4: Kurs, a retired worker on the farm. Was it like that everywhere? All the farms around here used to be like that.
2: But now it's not like that anymore. They used to make you work in the rain. You couldn't stop and go home and it started raining. Prof changed a lot of things. He did a lot about our housing. He did things that the other farmers didn't do. He put in DSTV.
4: Now you might think that cable TV is no big deal. But it's the way an entire generation of farm workers' children on this farm learned to speak English. Yet still Mark, the good farmer, and his workers remain
5: worlds apart. No escaping the past. And incidentally, I don't know if you've noticed, no white South African seems to have supported apartheid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
4: yeah, it is a very famous joke in South Africa that that no white person seems to have... Did you vote
5: for apartheid? No, as it happens, I didn't. But I know it carries no special meaning because everyone says that. But you knew people who did? Yes, and I think, to be honest, my own mother did. I remember her crying when Favut was assassinated. We were not a particularly progressive family. But he continues to try and make progressive changes. I met with them and wanted to make plans with them as to how we can transform this farm, and it was quite impossible to have uh, any kind of um, uh, conversation with them.
2: I gave him just a piece of my mind. I said, who the hell the you think, Mark Solms
5: you're coming from abroad? There was no, no precedent that you discuss with the landowner what's going to happen. They don't, I'm sure they didn't trust me. You know, all, all, all sorts of things um, were factored into the impossibility of us planning together.
2: I'm indigenous to this farm and I'm indigenous to this land. And who do you think? You people coming and you just
5: buy up farms and kick people off. I'm sick and tired of it. So I started making a few reforms on my own bat as I had to, changing employment conditions and housing conditions and so on. And when the workers started to see that I really meant it, that I'm not like my predecessors, to my absolute horror, the conclusion they seemed to have come to was I'm a fool.
2: And he asked me if I wanted to come back and work for him. And I said, No, are you crazy? I'm not going to work for any
5: white man anymore. And so within a few months, we were in the most terrible situation where people were not turning up for work, taking advantage, as I ex- experienced it, of my, of my goodness, you know, and feeling, you know, these people are not grateful. And so in a, in a few months, I'd become my own worst nightmare. I was speaking like a white South African farmer, and I was at loggerheads with my workers. And things didn't look that well for the business. One of the ladies
2: of the staff, of the kitchen staff, came to me and asked me, Nico, are you sure we're going to make it?
4: Somewhere along the line in this mess of difficult relationships and alienation, everything had to stop. Something new had to be done. Mark had to bring another part of himself to bear on this schism, the part of him that is a trained and practising psychoanalyst. The farm stopped
5: work. If there's any one reason that I had to identify as to why I am more willing to face the unwelcome truth about what it means to be a white South African of my generation, it's probably that, that I was psychoanalyzed and learned how to look things in the eye. And, you know, these are things which are self-evidently true, uh, uh, that we benefited. There
4: must be another reason. I know psychoanalysts in South Africa, and they're still slightly recalcitrant. You know, they do acknowledge, yes, it happened, and even the way they talk about it, it happened, not it was done. I read somewhere that On Your Farm is an ancient site, archaeological site.
5: What I did after realizing what a mess we were really in was to do what one does clinically, which is take a history. You know, when a patient presents... With a complaint, uh, with a symptom, you, 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 your first port of call in terms of trying to understand what needs doing is to take a history so you understand how it all began. That's how you arrive at a diagnosis. So I thought, let's do this. Let's take a history of my farm. And so I brought in professional help in the form of archaeologists and historians, and we stopped farming. The farm workers and I collectively assisted the archaeologists in digging up the history of the farm in order to understand how did we come to this pass. And one of the most momentous things that happened in that process was the discovery of a Bushman settlement site, 6,000 years old, about 50 yards from my front door. So that sort of puts things into perspective to see the physical evidence. And when I say physical evidence, I don't mean the odd shard or something. I mean there were just thousands upon thousands of stone, beautiful microlithic stone tools and uh, pottery shards and whatnot in this one spot what more evidence do you need than uh, that to demonstrate that this land was somebody else's? And it, w- it was made all the more dramatic, uh, the finding of that settlement site, by dint of the fact that among the farm workers are the descendants of those dispossessed Bushmen and Khoikhoi, whose land this was. So it was an enormous eye opener for us all.
4: Those excavations pulled everyone together. <laughs>
17: British writer Zadie Smith was only 24 when her first novel, White Teeth, was published to huge acclaim in 2000. She has since written more books, won various awards and been celebrated as one of Britain's best authors. Her chosen setting has frequently been North London, where she grew up, and to which she returned for her most recent book, Swing Time. It's also the location of Grenfell Tower, where the recent fire heightened debate about social divisions and inequality in Britain. The main characters in the new book are two young women who grow up on neighbouring council estates and take very different paths in life. The BBC's Michelle Hussein has been talking to Zadie Smith.
7: To me, I suppose it was a little bit about the idea of talent, supposedly in a meritocracy. I guess the idea of talent is that it lifts you out of your circumstance one way or another. But I was interested in uh, who who is defined as talented and who, whose talent is ignored and for what reasons. So it's a story about that too, about people who get away supposedly at what cost and people who stay and at what cost to them.
17: but do you have doubts about the idea that talent is is the route to to success are you are you saying something in the book about life being more chancy than that?
7: No, I suppose I have doubts about the supposed um weight of talent like in a in a school like mine, for example, you'd have maybe one or two people who went to Oxbridge, this was meant to be the great aim. I suppose I was that person, one out of two, uh, in a school of 2,000. But then when I got to university and realised that from other schools, maybe two-thirds of that school (laughs) went to uh, Oxford or Cambridge, then you question um, what this talent really is. Is the argument that everybody in my school was uh, mediocre? No, I don't believe it. Or everyone in these private schools were extraordinarily talented? No, that's not true either. So it's not it, the meritocracy is not as pure as it seems, and um, and I kind of always chafed at the idea of large portions of a school or a society being written off.
17: And you've become known over the years because of of the things you've written as a as a chronicler of London, if you like, or at least of a of a slice of London, life tiny a corner of London, of London. <laughs> like
7: ten streets.
17: Yeah, but it's a corner of London, <laughs> very close to North Kensington, where the
7: Grenfell Tower stood. Right. You knew that building. Well, everyone in the neighbourhood knew that building. I was in New York uh, when it happened. I do consider it a kind of um, a crime. And the thing which really struck me, actually, when I was thinking about it, is knowing those streets and and the bit of Notting Hill and Labrock Grove that they back onto, I know, and I'm sure many other people in the neighbourhood have seen these private security cars that drive up and down the fancy streets, you know, two minutes from... Grenfell all day long and all night long, presumably to protect those multi-million pound houses from people like the people who lived in Grenfell. So that's what struck me actually: that there was this extraordinary private security system around the rich, and then the poor, who were we were supposed to be protected from, were left um, in this uh, completely without protection.
17: You you wrote in the aftermath of the of the EU referendum last year. You suggested there was something about the picture that was being painted of Remain voting London.
7: Outward looking
17: multicultural that didn't quite ring true to you
7: I mean, I, I wrote about it. It does seem to me again that people in London tend to make their own private arrangements and, and they're interested in a kind of mixed society at, at a a superficial level, but they're not actually that interested in being in really mixed neighborhoods, in mixed communities, which actually is is their own loss in in my opinion. I grew up in a mixed community and it's incredibly beneficial for everybody. Mixed schools, mixed state schools in which people from different walks of life are able to live together, be educated together, understand each other is obviously a useful first step, but it's up to people to choose those schools and you're not choosing
17: them. Do you think you're right about the neighbourhood, the, the, the north-west London neighbourhood, if you can call it that
7: again? Well, it sounds ridiculous, but I literally am thinking of a novel set in the neighbourhood in 1830, so there you go. <laughs> it clearly is a preoccupation. It's very interesting, that time in London. And a time in my neighborhood when it was pastoral, you know. There was nothing prettier in London than Kilburn High Road, Wilsdon, Kensal Rise. This was really gorgeous country, right up until, you know, the 1890s when the suburbs went up all in one go. So um, it's fun writing, thinking about that time. Sadie
1: Smith talking to Michelle Hussain.
11: Seattle's a great place to visit because it has. I guess you could say a little bit of everything, but I like to think of it as a lot of everything.
18: We want to spend the last part of the show today with another installment of our series, Uncomfortable Truths, confronting race in america we've been running this series for several months now and asking you to nominate yourselves to take part in some difficult but honest discussions about race rochelle shimke heard that call out on the air and she wrote to us rochelle grew up in the 60s on a farm in a very small white community in tacoma washington her parents are white like rochelle but she has two adopted brothers norton who was adopted from South Korea, and her brother Garrett, who is black. Rochelle wrote to us, I would love to have a conversation with my brother about how we both grew up in the same land, but maybe saw completely different landscapes. So we invited Rochelle and Garrett to sit down and talk about their upbringing and how it's informed the way they perceive race in America today.
19: I have to confess that I did not see our family as different. Until just recently, I guess I had never thought of my brothers as a different color.
15: Yeah, same here. I mean, within what I would always exaggerate and say, within a 100-mile radius, Norton and I were it Mm -hmm. for everybody. There wasn't Latin or Asian or anything else. It was just us and everyone else. Mm -hmm. However, that was for me, I can only speak for myself, not Norton, uh, my norm. So even though I could look and see that I was with A family of blonde-haired, blue-eyed, eight-foot-tall people. (laughs) Um, That was my normal, so I didn't grow up seeing that as meaning that I was different from them. It wasn't until I was old enough for people to see and say, Hey, how come you don't look like your parents? From which then I took a leaf out of my dad's book and would make up an embellished story and say, "Well." Back in the day, you know, the slave trade, it's a recessive gene, and I just kind of popped out. I mean, I would say things like that because I'm politically very incorrect. Yeah, I told my friends that. I said, it just came out. And Dad was behind me once when I told somebody that, and he gave me a little high five. He was like, way to go, son.
19: Dude, I never heard that. (laughs) (laughs) So when do you think, Gareth, that you realized that you and Norton and all of us were all different colors?
15: Well, it's kind of like I knew, but that didn't register as being... Anything but normal. It wasn't till I I didn't see that it was not normal until probably junior high. When oh, okay. now we're out of the rural area, we're into school with more observers, so to speak, that can comment and notice that we're so different.
19: At Keithley Junior High,
15: yeah, and that's what I think is so incredible is by all statistics I should have had a really tough time in a rural farming community as right. the only black child for miles. Right. In the 60s, but I didn't feel that. And even to people then if I were to ever say I am a black child, which isn't bad but is kind of a comment of separation, mm-hmm. like I am black meaning I'm different than you,
20: mm-hmm. that
15: would have probably struck them as a little strange, like, well, I I didn't know that because people just saw you, me as part of the community.
19: Right.
15: And there were occasions when we went into really small Mm-hmm. restaurants in the rural towns, and I could tell everyone sort of turned their heads and looked, and I thought, well, maybe it's because of me. But the thing about that is, is I never let that own my definition. Okay. I knew why they were possibly staring, but I didn't go into places thinking they're going to stare, they're going to hate, they're going to treat me differently. Oh, God. I recognized when it happened, I never really had any uh confrontations growing up racially okay. speaking, really the only confrontations I ever had with anyone was always people who looked like me because I was different from them, possibly the way that I talked or the fact that I played banjo and like bluegrass music and were doing things that stereotypically weren't black enough. Wow, but from white people growing up in this rural farm town where I should have probably most likely have had that experience, mm-hmm. I didn't have that so
19: uh moving uh forward yeah. like by 20 30 years. Uh-huh. So you and I got to hang out when yes. you became a co- cosmetologist and you had your salon in Bellevue. I was uh shocked to hear during one of our chats about how what you just mentioned mm-hmm. that you felt racism from your, from black people to you. And not in King County from white people to you.
15: Yeah, that's, that's the part that I want to tread lightly on. It okay. is uncomfortable. Oh, okay. But that's the type of racism that I've always received is that I don't come across black enough, whatever that is. Wow. That and then the other one saying you're the whitest black man that I've ever met. I get that all the time. Dang. And it's a shame that if you speak like I do, whatever that is, Mm -hmm. if you uh, listen to music that is outside of the urban or rap or what have you, that somehow that means you're not something, rather than you're taking the opportunity to think, I'm an American, Mm -hmm. so all these music types, all these cultures, all these things belong to all of us, Mm -hmm. so why not open your box more, grab as much as you can, rather than Live in this small box that says you can only do these certain things, or otherwise you're not representing your people well enough, and that's in all cultures, I think, to some degree.
19: You have white women that used to come to your salon, and I think I asked you once uh, why you never had women of color or black women in your salon. Do you remember that conversation? Do you remember that question? (laughs) So, in your response to me was,
15: Um, okay, so for one. I did grow up in a white family, partially Korean. My hair was straight growing up, so I only had experience with that. And black hair is something culturally that typically you have your black salons because there's a lot more to the whole process, which I don't know myself because I went to a beauty school, which some would call a white beauty school, where you have (laughs) 30 seconds with a mannequin with afro black hair and someone's picking it out going all right just got to pick it out a little bit and then there's more education that needs to be known about doing black hair so okay people would see me cutting hair in the salon and assume oh he's an expert i'm going to ask for him because the question a lot of black women will ask when they go to a salon that they don't know or haven't gone to is Mm -hmm. do they know how to do black hair That is a very common question because you do need to know. It's different than everyone else's. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I wasn't taught that. I didn't grow up with it. Then the look of disappointment and disgust at me is how could you be a black man and not know how to do your own people's hair? And that's very hard to have that conversation and to have to admit that. But on the other side... Why do you assume that the white woman next to me doesn't know how to do your hair? She happens to be the expert in this whole salon. Right? She puts in a lot of time. Mm -hmm. She went to a school that taught her. You're assuming she doesn't and you're assuming I do. That's a Mm -hmm. double racist assumption in that Mm -hmm. part. But no one ever calls that out.
18: We just heard how Garrett never really considered himself to be a minority. He felt like he was part of the family and a larger community. But when he left that community and went just a few miles south to cedro Woolley, all of a sudden, he wasn't one of the Shimky kids. He was black. Right. So
19: cedro Woolley is a little small town. As both of us know, kind of rural, just like more or less where you and we yeah. grew up on 32nd Avenue. And people have always been really friendly, maybe because it's also a farming town or a rural town. That is not the experience that you have. And when you shared your story, I, I was sick to my stomach, sick to my stomach. So can you please share again what happened with you going through Cedro Woolley?
15: So Tiff and I used to live in Bellingham. Right, okay. And in the month of August, I would ride my bike from Bellingham to Seattle or Bellingham to Bellevue or reverse just to give myself a little challenge on a mm-hmm. bike. Okay. And every time, strangely enough, and see, and I don't go into places looking for this or expecting this. So that's why this is so different from anything else I've ever encountered in my Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. The minute I crossed into the border of Cedar Woolley, on either side, either Mm -hmm. going to uh, the south end or coming from the south end to the north, there was a truckload of white kids that just found me and would drive by pass me, and then yell out the window the n word, and then just oh keep going. God. So it happened three times, and so finally I came with another route that went around Chuckanut Drive the long way around because okay. they didn't want to go through Cedar Woolly. It was a little odd. It's almost like they were waiting there for somebody different to come through. Wow! And do it now. I don't know if that represents, and I doubt it does, all of Cedar Woolly. It just happened to be along Highway Nine okay. that coming in and out, these groups of kids saw me and. Chase me down in a truck. Damn. Yeah, Yeah, but I honestly don't care because as long as Mm -hmm. it doesn't hurt me and they go on their way, Mm -hmm. it is just them screaming out a window. It's unsettling. Mm -hmm. But in Mm -hmm. the end, if that's all they have in them and that's all they're going to do, I don't need to change them Mm -hmm. as long as I get from point A to B unharmed.
19: It's horrifying for me that my beautiful brother, who I love with my life and with my heart, was, has been treated in horrible, racist fashions
15: that I had no idea was going on. But see, if you think of it this way, I mean, and I appreciate that, mm-hmm. but considering how great of a life I had, if I had to do it all over again, I would choose the exact same path. Growing up in Tacoma, Puyallup, uh, in a rural town with the community from which we lived, it was fantastic because most of all, it allowed me to be my own person. Mm -hmm. Sure, there might have been a few instances where that kind of thing happened, but really not until I was an adult. Mm -hmm. So I had a pretty safeguarded experience. Sure, people may have stared at me sometimes who had never seen a brown Mm -hmm. boy walking around, but... That doesn't break me, mm-hmm. and we all have struggles of our own, correct?
19: Oh, God. We, but it's yes, the we greater
15: do. of it all, and that is I grew up an individual, a supported individual in a beautiful community. I don't care about any of that other stuff. I'm not mm-hmm. suffering. Mm-hmm. Sure, a truckload scared me, and they yelled out the N-word, but it doesn't devalue who I am in my own mind. As long as I'm wow. not destroyed or hurt, it really isn't a, wow, he really struggled. Here's a little funny story. Okay. And of course, with the way that I think only this would happen to me with my naivety. Uh, Did you ever realize that I inadvertently dressed up as a clan member for Halloween? (gasps) No. Do you remember when I used to dress up as a ghost? I always wanted to be a ghost, but I always wanted the top to be pointy. And not until I was an adult did I realize, oh my gosh, I was a clan member. (laughs) A black clan member. Just get a sheet and cut two holes and off you go. Yeah, That is right. I just discovered that years ago. Really? Oh, wow. I had no idea what I was doing. It was innocent.
19: Innocent. Yeah. Our whole life was so innocent. It was. was You're just not aware.
15: No, I'm not. That's the question I bring to the listeners is my unawareness of those kind of issues. And I grew up happy. Because I wasn't Mm. looking for those kind of things. I wasn't Mm. thinking of myself as a victim. I wasn't looking to be mistreated. So therefore, I wasn't even if I was. So what Mm. is the harm of that? As opposed to having to prove and find every racist person out there and go up to their face and say, Mm -hmm. you're a racist and you're Mm -hmm. mistreating me and you're doing this. I feel great. And I may have missed Mm -hmm. opportunities to do that if somebody was treating me. In a way, just because I'm black, but the fact that I didn't know, didn't care and went about my business doesn't Mm -hmm. make me less of a person. I always knew who I was. So why can't that be more of the trend as opposed to always going up and pointing fingers at people and just calling everybody in the world a racist for everything?
6: Come on, I dream about this. I have actual dreams about this, about busting the top people,
8: the rich people, White people.
3: One of the scariest things about today's opioid epidemic for public health workers, police and users is the makeup of the opioids themselves and how that's constantly changing. Pills that are sold illegally don't come with a list of ingredients, at least one that can be believed. And without clear identification, it's hard to treat overdoses and prosecute dealers. Max Blau has been reporting on this for Stat News. He's with us from Atlanta. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first, just explain this idea that we don't really know what's in a drug. Like, how much can
20: one dose of an opioid differ from another? When we're talking about opioids, I think the first thing we need to realize is that there are different types. There are the ones that a doctor may prescribe you. There is heroin. And then there are these other class you may have heard of called synthetic opioids. Mm -hmm. They're known as fentanyl, carfentanol. And it's a very small amount of synthetic opioids that it takes to kill someone. And oftentimes when people are buying drugs on the street, the person buying the drug doesn't always know exactly what they're getting.
3: Right. And so it's and it's one of the reasons we see so many overdoses is people just don't know the quantity that they're taking. You also, though, talk about this situation as a cat and mouse game between opioid dealers and law enforcement. Can you explain that?
20: So what you're seeing in, in some states as certain kinds of synthetic opioids are banned, that manufacturers of drugs are actually finding slightly different variants of synthetic opioid that is then manufactured. And this is technically legal. Oftentimes, um, some of these are just lab formulations that were created in like the 60s and 70s and never made it actually out into the world. People who are working in kitchens or, or other like homemade labs have been able to find them and and create slightly different opioids that are legal only because there's never been a reason not to make them illegal.
3: Right. So you're like, oh, right. If I get caught with selling this particular formulation and it's been determined illegal, I'll just make a slightly different variation of it and I'll be fine.
20: And of course, with that, there is, um, you know, none of these have been ever approved as a drug rather for either use in animals or humans. So. Give us a sense of the time pressure here. I and mean, once first responders you know, seize pills, how long does it
3: take for them to identify what they actually are?
20: One of the things that's really been, you know, hard for towns um, like Cincinnati or Macon or other ones that have seen these clusters of overdoses where dozens of people are suddenly going to the hospital or even dying within a matter of days or, or by the end of a weekend One of the things that is a struggle is how do you get those drugs tested as fast as possible? And often what would happen if it was just maybe one person overdosing or one drug that was seized is that it it would go to a crime lab and it would be at the bottom of the pile and there would be a bunch of other cases ahead of that that would have to get processed. And sometimes it could take weeks or a month to actually identify what that drug was.
3: You have also written that crime lab chemists are partnering with public health officials now to combat this epidemic. Can you give us an example of where this is is working?
20: This has happened in Baltimore. The fire department there is the group that responds uh, to overdoses. And when there is a uptick that is higher than usual in Baltimore, um, they alert the public health commissioner who has this belief that, you know, instead of waiting months or, or even a year for final data to come out on the public health side, By having imperfect data sooner about where overdoses are, she can send outreach workers there to a neighborhood or a block where overdoses are happening and get either people trained on how to use naloxone, just everyday residents, or to have health workers on hand in case um, there are more overdoses on the way.
3: Why isn't this being done more often and in more places?
20: I think part of the issue is that fentanyl is, hasn't hit the entire country to the same degree at the same time. So I think a lot of it is drugs come to a place and only after the fact are our public health and law enforcement officials handling the issue. Um, so yeah.
3: Max Blau is the Southern correspondent for Stat News. Thank you so much.
20: Thanks for having me. You know, I've always wanted to be a cop, when a uniform fit, well, calm to the seams.
13: Me and me niggas call the Greens and they discuss the politics and dreams. This is why I've always wanted to be a cop. Friday, we will pause to remember the victims of the July 7th ambush in Dallas. Five police officers were killed that summer night when a lone gunman opened fire after a peaceful protest downtown.
1: The shooter was identified as Micah Johnson and we know he acted alone. But for several hours that night, police were searching for another suspect, one that they had identified by mistake. Tonight, he explains how that night and one picture changed his life.
13: This is where I keep my flavors. I'm going to tell you, I got my Georgia peach. I got pineapple, white pina colada. This is where the magic happens at. There's a good chance
1: you don't know Mark Hughes, but you remember his face. For several hours on the night of July 7th, Someone else's mistake made this father of five public enemy number one.
13: Still to this day, people come up and say, I know you. You're the shooter. We brought Mark back to where it all started. He was among the hundreds of people who showed up that night for a rally and march against police brutality. It's it's a surreal feeling right now. You know, it's, um, it's a lot of emotions going on right now. It's actually like one of the first times I've been back. Unlike many of the protesters, Hughes was armed that night. His rifle slung over his shoulder when gunfire erupted just a few blocks away. He didn't want me to be mistakenly identified. His brother, Corey, begged him to turn over his gun. My first instinct was, well, I'm going to get my gun over if they're shooting. Um, And that's when Corey took upon himself to go get the police officers, like, take my brother's gun. I don't want them to mistake him as being a person that's shooting. But that's exactly what happened.
14: Do not approach this suspect. Uh, We'll bring him to justice.
13: Dallas police released this photo of Hughes he was now a suspect. And The first thing that came to my mind was, they're gonna kill me out here. I was angry, I was frightened, I feared for my life, I was confused, didn't know what to do. So Hughes turned himself into police and gave detectives the business card of the officer who took his firearm. He came back in the room he said, I have good news and bad news for you. He said, I found the officer who had your rifle and he collaborated your story. The bad news is that I have witnesses that say they saw you, they saw you shoot your rifle. Hughes would ultimately be cleared but the damage was done. Even this place of peace was a place that, that was up under attack.
1: Almost immediately, the threats started.
13: There were notes left. What did the notes say? Stuff like cop killer, uh, payback.
1: Those threats have stopped, but being downtown brings back the bitterness over the way he was treated by
13: police. I had a rifle out there. Bringing me in to question me, I have no problem with that. But to release me as the suspect, before you even spoke to me, before, before you had any evidence, that was reckless and dangerous. Now, a year later, Hughes is trying to move forward. The Texas heat keeps him busy. Yeah, buddy. And this place has brought positivity back to his life. Oh, man, can't beat it with a bat. So has his continued activism. I'm not walking around my head down. Um, we have to believe that there's gonna be change. For those that um, can't have too much sugar, got sugar-free flavors. This is the Mark Hughes you should know. He's done
1: running. He's doing whatever he can to be himself again.
13: I'm a man who's trying to make a living, provide for my family just like any other person.
1: I should point out it is legal to carry a long gun in public in Texas. I asked Hughes if he could do it all over again, would he still bring a loaded gun to the protest? He told me absolutely. He was out there marching for Philando Castile, a black gun owner killed by a police officer the day before. For Hughes, the gun wasn't for protection. It was a symbol. It took him four months to get his gun back, and he says he is still waiting on an apology from police. All this week, we're bringing you unique coverage of all the lives affected in this tragedy. We have much more for you right now at NBCDFW.com. Thomas
13: Jefferson's mistress, Sally Hemings, secret living quarters finally discovered. That was a headline I read online today that instantly caught me off guard. The story of the woman that Jefferson had multiple children with is a relatively well-known one in history, so to read the words, mistress, was jarring. Hemings was a slave, therefore the entire concept of consent is completely out of the window. What Jefferson did was rape a woman that he owned while keeping her right nearby in his home. It was gross, it was wrong, and she was certainly no mistress involved in some star-crossed romance. Many of the founding fathers of this nation owned slaves. That's an unavoidable fact. So, when you're passing down history lessons tomorrow at the family cookout, be sure you don't leave out any of those pesky details. You'd be doing your country a disservice. I'm Clinton Yates, and that's my take.
16: Context of white supremacy. Gusty Vinegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date Saturday, July 8th, 2017. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. If you have uh, suggestions, uh, thoughts on some of the news segments, uh, and certainly any of the other items that have happened over the past uh, seven days, other incidents, uh, if you have thoughts uh, that you would like to share reports on those, dial in the number 641 715 Four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero. The code five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate couple quick things before we get to the callers Uh, number one the infamous crystal tyler will be back on the cows this coming week Uh, for folks i know we have uh, newer listeners uh, the archives we've been on the air for eight and a half years at this point Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Uh, The PayPal button, it is on my blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. When you go to the blog, you'll see the PayPal button in the top right corner. If you are not into PayPal, drop me an email. We will get you a physical mailing address, uh, T. Moved uh, this month, so make sure you drop an email to confirm that you have the correct current mailing address. Thanks to all the folks who have supported, invested in the cows. Now, As I said, if you've not been listening to the cows for very long, <clears throat> the archives are extensive, more than 1500 programs way, way back uh, in 2014 crystal tyler in the midst of to put things in context i think a lot of uh, our listeners or a good number of our listeners they heard about crystal tyler there was a facebook video in the summer of 2014 everybody right went down to ferguson she crystal tyler she and her crackhead black husband and their daughter quote unquote interracial daughter they all took the sojourn down to Ferguson to report and to promote her book, uh, the wheat money. And, uh, she talked, you know, about racism face. I'm sure you can find the Facebook video easy. Anyway, she came on the program. Uh, she talked about her book, which is all about racism. White supremacy has actually a lot of great information about the history of Washington state, Seattle specifically, and black people's presence here. Uh, it explains, uh, how, Because of the system of racism, white supremacy, her husband is now uh, functioning as a crack addict, uh, that that is the system of white supremacy at work explains how she came to be in the position that she's in. Uh, We talked about all that on the program. She even she said explicitly the first time she was on the program, she said that uh, she looked at her now crackhead black husband. She looked at him and said that she wanted his genetic material. You have to go back in the archives to get more of the details. She came back and did a second visit. Uh, interestingly, uh, everyone should be very alert, especially the listeners uh, who heard. If you participated, if you got to ask questions, if you participated live, uh, or if you study, you go back, you listen to the archives. This is a moment for keen study because Crystal Tyler asked to come back on the program. Now, generally anybody white people non-white people i generally give a side eye to anybody who asks to come on the context of white supremacy because over the years well that's another story but uh for crystal tyler um i was already like you know this is someone i regard as a high level race soldier so now you want to come on you must have some sort of agenda Uh, in fact that might be a good question why did you Uh, reach out, uh, to, you know, see if you could get a, get an invite, come back and speak with us again. But I think folks should have some questions ready and and really be alert, vigilant with your, uh, listening. Uh, particularly like I said folks who are familiar with her a little bit if you've read her book she was giving the book out for free uh, before so if you want to read the wheat money should be available uh, if you did not get a chance to get a free copy put that on your question list as well uh, and the, chican- the chicanery started early as I said now she reached out to me this week and said she wanted to come uh, back on the program she hadn't spoke with us in a while I say okay Let's see. You know, we'll look at something for next week. We pick a date uh, this coming Monday. I wake up this morning and she says, well, wait a minute. I had I had a little trouble. Uh, I can still do Monday, but I work for a company uh, in Japan and I've got, you know, an engagement uh, that would require me to step away for 20 minutes. Uh, I would have to leave. I can come right back, but it would require me to step away for business. And then I can come back and finish out, you know, the rest of the broadcast. Now, again, she had just emailed me days before saying, you know, let's, you know, let's do another broadcast Uh, and picked. I gave her a range of dates. She picked. Let's do Monday. And then days later, wait a minute. You know, I'm going to have to step away now. I don't recall us ever on the cows doing over that eight and a half years. I don't recall us doing, uh, an interview with someone where they left for a period of time and then returned to complete the end of like this was planned and, and not, you know, something happened. I got a sneeze really quick, but I'm going to leave for 20 minutes and then come back and talk to you. So already some things are looking, you know, suspicious, but you know what to expect anyway, stay tuned. Crystal Tyler next. Um, that segment where the black male victim of white supremacy who was adopted, that's one of those where I hope I know uh, often uh, I think one of the things that I end the program with and have been for some years is being patient with other black people. That's one of those where I think it's so important recognizing, uh, I think, the importance that, it. hey, victims, non-white people, black people in particular, are victims of white supremacy, yes, we are subject to physical violence, but we also are victimized in terms of being given incorrect information so that we are confused about what is happening on this planet. That, I thought, was a really tragic illustration uh, in that segment. And if, if you paid attention, the segment started out with uh, black people are so racist. Man, I get so much racism from black people. Man, those no-good black people just because I don't want to listen to all their hippity-hoppity music and I'm, you know, expanding and appreciating other artists and everything that American culture has to offer. Uh, then I'm going to get to white people actually terrorizing him on a regular basis. So, well, 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 you know, I don't... I don't need to chase them down and call them a racist. That's not going to define... who. I mean... Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I thought, what another brilliant illustration of Seattle. I cannot say, particularly now that my physical address is in Seattle proper, um, I cannot emphasize enough that what an illustration. Like if I had grown up in Seattle, the cows would not exist. I would probably sound like that victim that you heard in that segment. <laughs> that uh, this here program and this Gus guy, they are the most racist. <laughs> that's That's probably what I would sound like. And that is a part of the violence of racism, white supremacy, confusing, confounding non-white people's understanding of what is happening on this planet. Next, I wrote that segment <clears throat> for... Uh, dealing with black male teachers, the, the lack of black male teachers, 2% or less in the United States. And some of the difficulties that they experience was published at Atlanta Black Star on Monday. Got great contribution from Dr. Curry, Dr. Travis Bristol. They've both been guests on the program. Some of our listeners, absolutely outstanding. Got you know more contributions than I even was able to include in the piece. And I got a sizable amount of follow-up from black male teachers who either they heard cause I had solicited on Facebook. If people were interested in sharing to, you know, contact me, uh, I think some people read the piece uh, or they heard on the, on the program previous broadcast where I was talking about it. And a lot of black male teachers reached out subsequently uh, to share and talk about their experience. So I thought, you know, if folks are interested, we could probably just do a whole program and have black uh, male educators Uh, participate and kind of talk about their experience because uh, there are not a whole lot of you all. So, uh, I mean, it was a substantial number. I was quite surprised at the, the number of responses. So if the, the black male educators uh, who participate in the cows or if you all want to reach out to other black male educators who don't listen to the cows, but you think, hey, they might want to join in this sort of program to talk about their experiences. Uh, that would be phenomenal. We can make time. We can get it done this month. Let me know if you'd be interested until justice at Gmail dot com until justice at Gmail dot com. Let's see if we can get it done this month. Next. <clears throat> um, the incident, I don't know if people saw it happened very recently. There was a young uh, black man he was in his early 20s. Uh, he was visiting in Greece and they say like a mob of white thugs, uh, race soldiers uh, killed him. Uh, this happened, I think, within the last couple of days. And there was another incident. It was a young black female. She died. I think she was I think it was some sort of tragic arrangement uh where she died suspiciously uh at the pool uh, at her residence. This is, you know, a few days or weeks before she's about to marry the suspected racist. Uh just alcohol white people and I said specifically this week because it's supposed to be the holiday and all that celebrating, but just in general, it is such a bad combination. Uh that is one <clears throat> It was never presented to me like that, particularly when I was younger, that, you know, you don't want to drink alcohol because we are in a system of racism. And if you are not sober, you're not going to be able to think well, you're not going to be able to make quality decisions and you especially do not want to be drinking around white people uh, because they love to take advantage of and abuse black people who are under the influence remember Solomon Northup he did that on the book club (laughs) a long list of black people who have had problems with this sort of behavior remember James Bird? he was under the influence that was why he asked for a ride from his white friends who ended up you know lynching him basically at any rate alcohol white people horrendous combination all the time last thing i'll get in that segment on sarah vaughn i wasn't going to play it because i feel like a lot of times these uh whites one of the ways that they practice racism white supremacy they thoroughly study black people important black people uh study them make lots of money off of them particularly when they are dead Um, And then, you know, write these books and what have you as the resident white expert on said, you know, deceased Negro. I feel like they do that sort of thing all the time. I thought some of the elements were important on that. Just getting some of the different ways that she experienced racism, white supremacy and the black self-respect that she had to not tolerate. uh, They're just tacky and trashiness. Uh, and We're going to put you down here in the furnace uh, on some sort of shabby cot or what have you. I mean, come on. Um, But I also thought that piece was important from because of the the white male caller uh, who dialed in where they're given all this evidence. This is a white woman, right? Given all this evidence, this is documented. These things happened. Not that this should be surprising uh, for this area. I mean, it was way worse uh, for most black people. This was like, a, <laughs> I was even going to use that other uh, P word, but this is a black person who was doing a little bit better uh, than a lot of other black people of this time period. Right. I don't think Sarah Vaughn's experience was representative of most black people in the U S you know, in the 1940s, fifties, right. For this white, <laughs> for this race soldier to call in, be like, Oh man, I don't want to, I don't want to hear all this about, you know, she had racism and, racism was a problem everybody loved her standard operating procedures like you have to have at least one white person if it's going to be some sort of public forum where there's even maybe a little slight bit of accurate information about racism white supremacy uh being discussed you have to have at least one individual classified as white on their job to say oh no 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 i dispute that that is not the case you all are making this up that is nonsense we do not want and we want the conversation to sound like get that black guy from Seattle back in here. <laughs> get him back. What are you talking about? She was a victim and all this. That is hogwash. get back up? Talk about those racist black people again. I will conclude there. Uh, if I could request, if you could take five minutes to share whatever thoughts, insight you have suggestions that way, everybody has an opportunity to share <clears throat> once everybody speaks, uh, it gets there one time in. If you have uh, other comments or questions uh, that you want to share, you know, we should have ample time uh, for that after everyone has spoke their first time. Uh, also, uh, if I could make a request, we could not use metaphors uh, for the compensatory call-in that is exclusive to this broadcast. I don't ask that any other time. Uh, if we could not use metaphors, uh, it's been my experience uh, or it is my conclusion Racists, one of the ways that they practice racism uh, is by using analogies, similes, comparisons between uh, separate things that are not equal. Uh, They do this sort of thing all the time, and it just produces rampant confusion. Non-white people, we are still learning. We are very confused. You can put Gus T. Renegade. I am highly confused, still learning. But in our confusion... Sometimes we will employ metaphors uh, to convey our thoughts, uh, hoping that that, you know, accurately promotes our mes- message Often it does not. Uh, again, it just transmits a lot of confusion and, and just a lack of clarity uh, on this broadcast. If we could be explicit, direct to what it is that we want to say, I would really appreciate it. I will prompt about that and be mindful of it myself. Much obliged uh if you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could watch the background noise, uh, just use your mute button if you know you know you got music on or the television or other people being a little rowdy uh really appreciate it just helps uh to maintain the quality of the broadcast uh with that, we will get to the folks who dialed in uh thank you calmly. uh first few folks who have a hand up line should be open. Can I be I uh, heard uh, both Thomas and our young caller in the Bay Area. I guess uh, we're we'll trying to get our young caller first, and then get Thomas. In Absolutely.
21: Okay. Right. Um, greetings, Gus, and to the rest of the callers. So, um, just based on the segment towards the black adoption in Seattle, um, I've always felt like that—that that was just the adoption of such a sort for black children. is just a way to, for white people to use them in such a matter. Like, for example, um, I've always felt like around at least 65% of the time when white um, white couples go to adoption centers, they would usually aim for the black children as they are young, either male or female. But they, just based on my knowledge, they would most likely go for the black male because they have that sort of power and strength to be able to, I think, manipulate it the most. And and I feel like with this power to be able to, for white people to be able to adopt black children, I feel like it just connects in, in such a way back to slavery, just in terms of being able to manipulate a black person into thinking that white is always right, just by doing that, just by being sweet to them, thinking that, they, thinking that the white people actually love them when they actually despise them and don't want to be around them. They don't. Um, I just feel like if the white people try to take the black children away from their parents, from their actual parents, it's just going to make things worse for the child because um, I would say that it's just going to take their minds off of the war that we are actually in. It's just going to keep them focused on something else like sports or anything other than the system of white like supremacy. They won't teach them about that. They'll if anything, they'll, like, get on the border of it, just explain what racism, some racism is in the most vague way. And it's just, I just feel like that, I wouldn't say it's a problem. I just feel like it's something that should be noticed, at least in the United States. I don't know how it goes globally, but nationwide, this is a thing that goes on, especially in Seattle, like you, like you specifically stated. And, yeah, that's how I feel towards the adoption of black children. White
22: why couples
21: And um Just based on Another one of the Um Segments Let's see Um Oh Yeah So um Based on Another one of the segments Oh Towards the um The The very last segment Um Where the black Where I think Someone Shot a cop I think If I'm correct But um Someone shot out Cop A police officer Uh I think they handled a weapon just because it was a process based on somebody, a black person who was shot by a police officer. Um, If I'm correct, I think this person was a suspect before evidence was even put out, like, just something like that, and I just feel like in that that sense, um, that's a problem right there, too, because according to the media... People are going to care more about the fact that cops are being shot instead of the fact that, that cops are shooting black people. The media, I feel like, also feel like the media will make it seem like people care about the shooting, the police brutality towards black people, but it's just like a huge problem when somebody's suspected to kill a Kill another police officer when just a random person just goes ahead and shoots a police officer. That's just a huge problem to society. They need to be stopped, they need to be put in jail, they need to be taken away from us, they need to go back to where they came from. Quote but um, when it's a police officer shooting. A black person. It just goes straight to oh, I thought he had a gun. Uh, it was black on black crime. It was just something just like this. Is some nonsense that won't even make any sense at all. And I just feel like, I just feel like in that certain case, it just that's a problem as well. I I am not sure yet of how to solve that specifically for myself, but I feel like if if well, i I'm not sure on that topic of how to resolve it. But I feel like everybody just needs to notice what's going on, how the media twists our opinion towards things, and just one more, one more thing. Um, just, just something I saw yesterday on social media. Um, I realized that next month is the anniversary of August 24th of last year in Newark. Um, this ten-year-old child was chased by a police fight. Like a series of police officers claiming that he was a suspect. Well, not a suspect, but he looked something like a robber that they were looking for. And when I saw in the, when I saw the pictures of both of the people on Facebook, actually, I actually saw distinct fixture figures like distinct features of the nose, and that's about it. And I just felt like that was complete nonsense for – I just felt like it was complete nonsense for, just in general, police officers to, like, aim guns, aim shotguns at a 10-year-old child who literally rolled a ball, a basketball, into a street. And they were just—they were about to kill him until neighbors interfered. And I feel like if those neighbors hadn't, hadn't interfered, they would have killed – they would have literally killed this child and not even asked him questions. They wouldn't identify. They wouldn't ask for identification. They would just go ahead and shoot him. And even if that was the the robber, user, I feel like they just they would just have ruined it too. It's just like, I just feel like, like I stated, multiple times, the black parents in this society needs needs to teach their children about these types of things because I feel like we as a whole need to be. We need to wake up towards these situations. We, as I learned previously, we are in a war and we can't just be sugarcoating everything, just thinking that everything's all happy and stuff for us, but it's really not it's just I just feel like we need to learn we just need to learn from this and I I, I know it's kinda of vague, but that's all I would like to share and thank you for taking my call.
9: Hmm.
16: Well but, said, young man. Uh was I thought not vague at all, uh, right? Right to the point, young, uh, young male. Just accustomed to saying that. But uh, definitely appreciate your, your observations, touched on uh, so many different things. I think a lot of folks agree with your assessment of adoption. Uh, I think we've long taken the position that it's an act of, uh, act of war, uh, one of the many ways that racists wage war against uh, black people and black children. Specifically, I know Dr. Wellsing would say when you play around with sex, the joke is on the offspring all the time uh, and absolutely you can connect that with his, his final comments as well in terms of the way that children are treated and uh, I would certainly echo all of us I think need to do make sure we're doing our best uh, to share information particularly with black children to make sure that they understand uh, the war that's being waged against us so that they can be a little less confused better prepared uh, to defend themselves uh, thank you for your patience Thomas in New York did you have commentary sir
23: Yes, I do, guys. Thank you very much, and uh, thanks to the Bay Area call. I just want to say to him, you know, I'm glad that he's uh, forming opinions and, and um, you know his own opinions uh, because so many of the young people that I work with, you know, in their twenties, everything with them has to come from um, something that they read on social media. It's like they have no, they won't make an a opinion of their own. I sometimes let them rant and then I say, okay, so now what do you think? And it's like they get stuck, like, oh, I'm not supposed to do that. So I'm supposed to think for me, you know. So I'm glad that you're you're, you're trying to think for yourself. You're very good. Um, Gus, I'm glad you have Christy Tyler back. Um, I might need to call out of work that night to be able to fully participate in that one. Um, and I just wanted to say about her, one, one thing that you left, well, you didn't leave it out, but this was a racist mother in a black and raising a black child, or did she have multiple children? I know she had one. Um, And uh, she's a top-tier racist up there with Sue Europe and um, Lacey Swartz Moms, and they all have black children. You know, it's very um, telling. uh, The joke is on the children, like you just said. I wanted to know, uh, I have a question for anyone from Atlanta. I just have a question regarding um, living in a black utopian society. Um, So I just wanted to um, ask them a question if there's anyone from that area on the show. Um, One of the clips you played, it was funny because I had wrote this down, and it was sort of expounded upon on one of your clips. It's about the white opiate addiction. And um, as you know, uh, in New Jersey, the governor, uh, Chris Christie, um, a.k.a. Humpty Dumpty, now he... um, He's going to be in charge of the opium drug problem in America. He's going to be leaving office, I guess, uh, after this election. So they on New Jersey 12, which is a New Jersey's version of, I guess, New York 1, um, they had this state congressman on talking about the opium addiction in New Jersey and um, how come the uh, abuse... Uh, has spread so far and how come the state has is so far behind and you know What exactly is Christie gonna do in the country being that New Jersey is one of the worst states with the white opium addiction? And though this guy said well, you know the, the problem is is that um, It got out of control Because we thought that the opium addiction was just gonna stay in the inner cities we never thought it was gonna leave the inner cities So once it left in the inner cities, you know, that's when it got out of control. So I was just thinking, all the years we've had opium problems in the inner cities, nothing was done. Now, you know, once again, um, they're going to do something. But I just thought it was telling that he admitted, you know, that, hey, this was an inner city thing. It was no big deal. Um, And I think we all need to invest in fentanyl stocks. Um, You know, let's get as many of these people out of here as possible. Um, Sarah Warren, that was a very good clip um, that you played about her. And that last call, I had wrote that down, too. I mean, just coming into um do what white people do. Um, Jay-Z uh, has the Anti-Defamation League after him because of a comment he made on Jewish people owning property, which I thought was very interesting. Um, the black farmers seem to be under attack worldwide, not just here. And um this was in recent times, this wasn't like something we could say was in nineteen whatever. I mean, this was under George Bush, our two so called black presidents. I mean, and this guy was denied loans and, and going put through all this and still in court today and nothing's being done about it. He's out of his house. I mean, it's just terrible. Um um the the black guy who was very confused um, that white woman who was interviewing, who seemed like she knew him and grew up with him, it's, she let him dress up like a Klansman. I don't care how—white people ain't ignorant. She let him dress up like a Klansman. She should have told him, bro, but she didn't care because she's a racist. Um, and the last part I wanted to mention, the brother with the gun um, in Houston. I can't believe it's been a whole year since that whole thing went down. But the witnesses who lied and said they saw him shooting the gun— Should have been charged with fouling a false police report, Um, because you know that's what white people do. Um, They always saw something that didn't happen, and it brought me back to the brother who bought the air rifle or the pellet gun um, in um, in Cleveland or in Ohio, um, Crawford, who was in the store. John Crawford the third, and the white woman says, you know, she calls the police, or it was a guy, a white man called the police made this report like this guy was pointing the guns at people I mean this man was on the phone and um, same thing same exact thing I'll mute my line thank you Gus
16: absolutely almost reminds me of the time they saw that guy uh, brushing his teeth and called the police and reported uh, Yeah, never mind uh, other folks who dialed in and we have not heard from uh, line should be open feel free can I be heard Yes, sir.
24: Greetings, everyone. Uh, Yes, I'll start off uh, uh, when I say Sarah Vaughan, uh, is synonymous with self-respect. Number two, uh, I have down here, uh, meeting, uh, mistreating black farmers, I suspect, corrupts the chain of operations uh, of non-white people uh, feeding themselves feeding ourselves you know through the chain of getting food from the ground to the grocery stores primarily our only our only uh contact with food is through the grocery stores and uh a- it's apparent that uh white people are determined that that's gonna gonna be the only access that we have uh at least in this part of the world some parts of the world not even not even with that uh there are still going on steady incidents of black people being shot to death by white law enforcement and white non-enforcement uh, uh, people. Uh, I thought it was an interesting story about uh, the land issue in, in South Africa uh, where the uh, the white uh, gentleman was saying, uh, even though I know it was wrong, i still ain't giving up that land. You know, in other words, I'm gonna be uh, I'd rather be a racist white supremacist, uh get over it. You know, that's basically what uh he's saying. Uh I am uh, pleased over the evidence uh of Venus Williams uh at least being exonerated for it it not being her fault, uh, with those greedy white people who are trying to sue her. Uh maybe that will uh corrupt their case. Uh, so she won't have to give uh, them uh, some of her money, some of her hard-earned money. Uh, the story about the adopted uh, non-white uh, children, the uh, the non-white victim of racism, white supremacy. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really, I really don't believe the testimony. Uh, I don't think it's authentic uh, because the first question comes to my mind is, did they have a television? You know, all of the racism, white supremacists on television that shows you about race. And uh, I'm pretty sure he doesn't sound like he's like 80, 90 years old, you know, when, when it, it was, the only thing was going on was a radio or something like that. So uh, I I just don't, I'm just not going for it as far as that concern. And I'll just say out doubt that the white person in, in part in the interview was lying. Uh Oh, uh, what I have here, Elsir. um uh, the person seemed to, yeah, it, he seemed to be in denial. He seemed to be in denial. I have that down here of a lot of things. Uh, and uh, I agree with your your assessment. Uh, with the, I, I heard that with the white the white uh, uh, person, I suspect was practicing racism, talking about. Uh, Talking about uh, with with uh, Miss Vaughn that uh, I love her music, but uh, all of that stuff about racism was around. It's always a white person, like I say, it's always a white person that's like that 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 that'll bring that out, bring that lie out like that. Uh, so I'm not surprised. Uh, and last but not least, uh, I would just say uh, VGQ, but wearing an assault rifle in public is not smart to me. Uh, but VGQ to the uh, victim who uh, uh, did it, and I think he said he would do it again, uh, VGQ. And that's all I have. Thank you. Right on, retired
16: firefighter. Uh, other folks that we uh, have not heard from who have a hand up, uh, lines should be open. Feel free. Can I be heard? I uh,
25: heard both of you. Go ahead, caller. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, greetings to uh, you, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Uh, two things I just want to uh, uh, comment on in regards to the uh, recordings. Uh, I know uh, the uh, the male uh, non-white uh, adoptee who talked about his uh, experience uh, in Seattle. Um, I think uh, somebody touched on it earlier about how it's important not just uh you know not just adopted uh black people with white you know with white parents but just all of us have to teach our children about racism because uh you get this confusion here and more so uh i think his confusion was more intentional than anything uh they basically tried to uh just you know make him believe that there was a world where uh either racism didn't exist or racism isn't that bad so but i know with uh with us uh, black parents we have to uh, you know we're we're still learning so we're still a little bit you know we're still in the process of uh learning ourselves about the system of racism and white supremacy so it's very important to you know teach our children at a early age uh so they won't be as confused as you know just say us uh, as a people uh, as we're growing up, um, the farmer, uh, the black farmer or the farmer in South Africa. Now, that was an interesting piece because, I, you know, it that right there encompasses the system of white supremacy uh, as I, you know, as I see it, because, you know, and it's been repeated many times before about how white people are not ignorant about racism. Uh, they know our history, and it's like he didn't even care. And it also goes to show you that this is not, racism is not something that white people are going to end. We are going to have to end it, and we're going to have to do something to force them to end it, because white people will not stop being racist. So, you know, it, it is the job of non-white people to, uh, to replace this uh, system with the system of justice. So th- it was a perfect example of why uh, white people are not going to stop being racist. I mean, the guy basically just said, I know it's wrong. I know we took we took their land, but I don't care because I got it and we got all the power. So, uh, you know, I, it, it's just, yeah, like I said, white people are not going to end racism. So uh, that's all I have for now in my life. Appreciate
16: that. Uh, The other caller who chimed in.
6: Uh, Greetings. Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, uh, greetings, Gus. Uh, Greetings to the callers and listeners. Jay out of New York. Um, Just giving a call to make a couple of comments on the clips, uh, great clips by the way, Gus. Sorry I wasn't able to send in anything this week. Um, The continued terrorism um, in reference to that farmer uh, from these uh, white suspected racists, Uh, that are debilitating, smothering, and not supporting the non-white black businesses. Um, It just seems to be a continual theme that continues to get worse from what I'm seeing. Um, The one thing that I got from the clip is here a family lost their farm, um, which also was their place of residence, just trying to operate a business to sustain themselves. The reporter doesn't even mention the fact that, you know, here his wife is sick, seemed like she you know was going through a very difficult time, but now they're homeless, but the reporter stresses the fact that the sheriff took the dogs that the farmer owned since they were puppies, and that seemed to be like a big thing, not mentioning anything about the homeless position that they're in right now and everything that happened um just kind of strikes me as you know kind of what they do but but I kind of that that stood out to me at the end. I agree with the firefighter um, in reference to the grocery stores and and also trying to siphon out that um, connection to black farmers. Um, I did notice I was in Camden, New Jersey two weeks ago. One of the larger grocery chains in the Camden, New Jersey area that services heavily melanated population in that area has like a police station within the grocery store. First time I've ever seen anything like this. It's like a little mobile police station but it's it's there it's not something that they kind of take in i can't i shouldn't even say mobile it's actually like within the grocery store um that actually got my brain thinking in terms of what's to come next because i've never seen anything like this in any of the areas that are dominated um you know by the suspected uh, racist white individuals kind of throughout the new jersey or even new york areas so So I'm kind of keeping an eye on that. I'm going to probably do a little bit of research on that, too. Um, I did read an article in the WashingtonWeekly.com that spoke about the decline of black businesses in the last 20 to 40 years. I'm going to send the link over to you, Gus. But it did really kind of focus on multiple declines. And this is in the insurance industry. This is in the banking. Um, I think they specified black banks, I think they had about 45, 48 different black banks in 1985. And now I think there's only a total of 11 or 12 banks still existing and more to close. Um, so continual um, decline of black businesses throughout um, the U.S. market. Um, I did want to thank the Young Scholar in the Bay Area for what he mentioned um, and to keep up. Um, as Thomas mentioned, to just keep up the great work that you're doing. I do let my kids listen to um, the comments that he makes because I think sometimes as I'm kind of trying to impart information on them and they're coming back to me, they feel isolated because, you know, unlike other kids that are in their age bracket that are not talking about the same thing, it's good to hear from somebody else that's kind of close to their age that are kind of in that codified environment as well. So thank you for that kind of keep up the good work um the terroristic white supremacist farmer um I, I took this quote down what am i going to do just turn around and give my land to some bushmen? and like the last caller said these folks are very very knowledgeable about this system and they're going to do everything to maintain it i wanted to point out that the ex- excavation that they did um I'm pretty sure that there was a lot of money made from that excavation, and he's continuing to make money from it. And because he said that the land was his, pretty sure all the profits are going back to him, while other people are, the the melanated individuals, the indigenous people are just happy to be kind of finding out that, of course, that they're the original inhabitants of that land, but the money is still going back to this terroristic individual in that area. Um, I'll kind of pause for now and uh, let somebody else come in and I'll kind of mention the other pieces that I have later.
16: Thanks for the time.
22: Bye. Appreciate the hey, commentaries. Oh yes, sir. Go ahead, uh Mr. Steele. Awesome, awesome. Uh this is uh Ken Steele and I'm currently in uh Chino, California. And um I wanted to uh start my uh report this evening by uh, making a correction to uh, some information that I provided um, during the workplace racism uh, segment a couple of days ago. Uh, The victim of racism that uh, was accused of uh, sexual harassment uh, that worked at Fox News um, was an anchor um, by the name of Charles Payne. Um, my apologies for, um, mistaking, uh, him with another, uh, black, uh, newscaster, um, from Fox News, but, uh, sometimes, uh, names, um, tend to, to, confuse me. So, uh, that is Charles Payne. He is the, um, uh, victim who is, uh, who has been accused of, um, sexual harassment, um, and sexual misconduct, uh, working at Fox News. Uh, What I wanted to um, report on this week um, is, uh, I know it was touched upon um, earlier um, by Gus, but uh, there was a victim of racism that was recently um, beaten to death in Greece. Uh, His name was Bakari Henderson. And if you go to his uh, Facebook page, I believe that uh, Facebook has Um, deactivated it or uh, put him on the um, not active list. So you can't uh, go ahead and uh, friend him. It actually says, uh, now, remembering Bakari Henderson. I'm on his page right now. And uh, if you go on Bakari Henderson's page, you'll notice that uh, in all of the pictures that are visible, he seems to be surrounded by um, suspected racists. In every single one of these photos uh, um, that includes other people Um, he's frequently um, pictured uh, beside uh, suspected white supremacist females as well I did a little bit of research on him and I found out that he was also a member of a Greek fraternal organization but this was a white Greek fraternal organization and he was also um, uh, he was also uh, said to be in greece at the time um, with the aspirations of starting a business he was a um, a business student uh, at um, uh, the university of arizona uh, so you know i wanted to say i was doing my research on this guy and um, man, i I felt uh, I felt really bad because um, I'll admit that I could have easily been uh, this person at one point in my life. Um, you know, in my more confused days uh, in college, uh, I was uh, a heavy drinker. Um, and it wasn't uh, something that uh, I decided to do um, on my own volition. This was definitely um, a mode of behavior that I had picked up from uh, hanging out with um, suspected racists. When I was uh, younger, it was easy for me to look at um, suspected – because of the fact that I was raised in in a small rural community, it was easy for me to see these suspected racists as people that you could easily just ignore and avoid. But um, when I got to the college level, um, you know they just had so much money and they were doing so much better than me that you know, they convinced me to engage in a lot of behaviors that I otherwise wouldn't do. Um, I suspect that um, Bakari Henderson um, was convinced by his class, or by his uh, frat brothers and uh, by the suspected races that were surrounding him um, to go on this trip. Um, I'm sure that he was, um, uh, he was encouraged by them to um, be um, extremely familiar with them while under the influence of alcohol. And I'm sure that uh, some of his buddies even witnessed uh, him being killed and did not do anything to intervene. And all of these things are um, occurrences that um, I've had similar experiences with. And um, you know, I just want to say uh, it's it's imperative that we teach younger victims of racism that yes, racism is real. Yes, it is happening right now. Yes, there are people that are doing it. And yeah, your uh, your so-called white friends um, are oftentimes going to be the catalyst for the extreme incidences. Of racism to be exercised upon you and uh, that's exactly what happened uh, with uh, Bakari and it's happened to me in the past I've been assaulted beaten up um, and uh, hospitalized by suspected racists uh, you know after uh, a night of drinking at one point in my life and you know after that incident uh, I had a concussion that lasted for about a month I still uh, am not. Um, I still can feel that I'm not 100%. And this happened over five years okay. ago. And, um, and yeah, uh, all of that could have been avoided on my part. Um, had I known uh, better uh, than to, you know, cavort with suspected racists and to uh, engage in their uh, you know, alcohol fueled endeavors. So um, I, you know, I really, really would implore all of us to um, make a point to communicate to young people um, just how real the threat of racism, white supremacy is. Just how real the threat is, even with the people that uh, have identified themselves as uh, our buddies or our friends. And um, and yeah, we 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 got to reach people at a younger age because uh, this stuff doesn't start doesn't start in college this starts in the formative years and um, man it's just so hard to see somebody go out like this Um, you know rest in peace and rest in power to Bakari Henderson Uh, sorry uh, that it had to be you Um, I hope other people can learn from some of the mistakes that were made that led to your untimely demise. Thank you so much.
16: Well said, Mr. Steele. Very important. Uh, Hopefully, uh, as you said, people can, you know, learn something from this tragedy, Uh, and especially him being so young. I think he had just graduated, if I'm not uh, mistaken, from the University of Arizona. But um, absolutely. Um, And particularly, Sharon, you know, personally, I think a whole lot of us listening on this call right now uh, or folks listening to the archives, people who have spoke, people who are, you know, going to share something this evening, uh, can say, oh yeah, I was there when I was confused about racism, white supremacy, and hanging out. Had my white pals, my white buddies, didn't think they would ever, you know, do anything to me, and uh, it easily could have been us. Uh, I know a lot of folks uh, have talked about that. Uh, down through the years so yeah we just try and do better uh, as we know more learn more uh, and try and share that information with others especially young people he was 23 especially young people and unfortunately uh, morbid reminder I just watched this morning I kid you not I turned on Little Boxes to watch. I've mentioned it before. I think the film is hilarious. We've talked about it. I turned it on to watch a segment of it as I was nodding off very early this morning. I get up. I go to look at the news. Nelson Ellis dies at the age of 39 today uh, from heart complications, if I'm remembering the report correctly. Nelson Ellis, he was the black male of people who saw True Blood. On HBO Uh, he was the gay cook Uh, and I said with little boxes I think I mentioned it on a compensatory call in recently because I just heard about the film um, that his character in little boxes he is a writer and he's writing uh, basically doing like food reviews uh, almost an homage to his true blood uh, character but him being dead at 39 from heart complications in my view that is racism white supremacy it takes an astronomical toll on the health of black people 39 years old nelson ellis passes away today uh, other folks that we've not heard from as well
26: have you heard yes sir good evening Gus. good evening to the callers. um this is a voice from Florida, Um, yeah, I heard that same thing too, and it really shocked me because he he was young and he was becoming to he was in the beginnings of being one of my favorite actors, and um, I was just shocked when I saw the news, and it just it just to me first thing I just thought of was like through all the terroristic uh, um, treatment that he's probably dealt with, I mean, he's been on the set for True Blood for a while and just to be around them so much and to deal with so many different angles of it and then a medical apartheid just a combination of everything at hand um, it was just sad it was just a sad, 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 sad moment for me um, I also wanted to talk about the Nilly Fuller, Nilly Fuller the clip you played, um, I think is very important Um, I don't know if people overlooked that statement, but when he said that in order for anything else to be solved, you have to solve racism. If you don't solve racism first, then everything you're fighting for, it's just not going to be successful. And when he said that, I started thinking about, you know, when you have uh, victims of white supremacy um, that, are out here fighting for gay liberator rights um, and you are fighting for equality to be a homosexual person in society but yet when you go inside your own realms of your own LGBT community you're still facing racism i seen an article that had um There were club owners that said they only wanted white gays only. So you're fighting for a community that is not even fighting for you. They're just using you to fight for their agenda. But once they get their agenda accomplished, then you're still on the outs of racism. Um, The feminists, same way. With the black feminists, I, I don't see none of them. We never attack any of the the main white terroristic suspected supremacists out here. It's always black feminists teaming up with white supremacists for their agendas you I don't see any of them um i had went on Twitter and it was a it was a famous white um feminist that was on there. I asked her I said, hey, um black china she's been raked through the coals in the media where's where's the feminist where's the Where's the white feminist? Where's the black feminist? You got this white guy who puts up her nude pictures on um, social media, and what I'm waiting for, because I find it very interesting, and what I'm waiting for is that the revenge porn um, law in California states that if you pose any revenge porn on on a mate, that you're likely liable to seek jail time to see jail time, so I'm wondering I'm waiting to see if he'll get his fair share of jail time or any type of uh of any type of punishment but I you know you can only wait and assume for that you know it's just it's something that you just know it's a long shot for it to happen or you see it happening, but just to see how that plays out, I'm just Wondering about that. Uh, The NRA, same thing with Palana Castile. uh, They fight for everybody. Hey, we're gun owners. You're part of the organization. We have to fight against people. That's not out here trying to um, ban guns. But when it comes down to Palana Castile, NRA just backed out. They they don't have nothing to say. Uh, With the confused victim of racism, as I was listening to him, he said, he, um, the part where he was being chased or, you know, followed by the truck of these suspected racists, and um, they were yelling out the N-word towards him, and he says, oh, you know, I did it a couple times, but I end up finding another route that was longer, and I took that instead. But I really didn't have a problem with that, and I don't see it as a problem. And I'm like, I'm in my head like, oh, my gosh, like, there's, it's so real because there's a lot of, of, of victims that are confused like that, and they don't understand. When you're dealing with, when you understand terroristic white supremacy, you, they go from different levels. It'll start off saying the N-word, but I guarantee you, if he kept making that same route routine, with that mind frame that it was just the n word and I would bypass it as nothing bad, I guarantee you, after his fifth ride, they would have started throwing stones. If you would have kept going and avoided that, it would have been probably chasing him with a knife or somebody would have ended up grabbing a gun, their dad's gun, and it would have escalated. Because that's what happened they escalate their violence if you they see that it start. You're, you're resistant to it and. It just gets to another level so as, as victims you cannot take things like that lightly you have to take it seriously um I did want to say I say I say to everybody out there in Chicago um, like I you know I was telling everybody and I know Gus says it all the time um, when you've got to be codified about your ways of going around and how you maneuver um, I remember before the holiday came, I told you guys that I'm very codified when it comes to. There's two days I don't leave my house. I don't leave my house on Fourth of July, and I don't leave my house on New Year's Eve. You cannot decipher the the difference between fireworks and gunshots. And now in this, where the elevation of terrorism is just just uh, just shot up, where I just felt like it was just a, a purge in time for people to go out there and really you know go after killing blacks and when I heard 30 Chicago seconds. oh 30 seconds. when I heard Chicago said uh, 100 killings and 14 getting shot it brought me back to the five um, the five officers that got probation for killing black people during Katrina so I think that the in Chicago during that time all of that is not gang-related. I think white people were out there shooting and killing blacks, and I'll meet my line, and I'll call back later. That's all I have to say. Thanks.
16: Appreciate that. Appreciate that. I know uh, Pam, who's spoken with us before, she's a uh, Chicago uh, resident, uh, Chicago native even. Uh, I think she's given a similar opinion repeatedly uh, when they give those uh, grisly numbers about the number of black uh, people who died uh, in Chicago over a given time period and saying she does not think all of that is just you know What they call gang related and black-on-black crime and all that she thinks that that is absolutely uh, Absolutely uh, Coordinated uh, white violence uh, and they just come in and kill black people or do whatever they want and then just blame it on uh, black people she and other people uh, have uh, Postulated a similar uh, theory as well. It's not just Pam and, and the cult that you just heard from uh, other folks that we've not heard from at all, uh, the number again, 641 uh, 715 The code, 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. Other folks we've not heard from at all, if you had a hand up, feel free.
27: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, Sir. Greetings to you, the host, the callers, and the listeners. This is in Uh As far as the clips that I heard about land and white people on our land around the world, uh, I would just say you know we' we will remove white people off of our land in this generation and we'll remove them out of this existence in this generation. Um, but i I wanted to clarify. I know I keep talking about the term white, but I think it's important. So if you don't mind, I do want to just clarify what I've been saying. Um, So I choose to identify the core group of white people as ice albinos. That's just what I've chosen. Um, I'm not saying that the terminology system of white supremacy is problematic. I think that terminology is descriptive and it's accurate. Accurate. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, uh but the term white is not descriptive enough not in my view uh, again the the moors classified as free white persons in certain documents um and but they don't have what we would call white power um and also like i i went on um on a couple of dates with the darkest lady that i've ever seen um a very beautiful lady from south sudan uh she had two white american parents um uh she's but she came here uh to america from egypt and just by coming here from america uh to america from egypt i believe she would be able to be classified as white on the census so you know it's, it's just that that confusion is is my my situation and um and also uh when I mentioned about the class that I had went to, the Pan-African Studies class, the white ice albino female in the Pan-African Studies class was comfortable with the black students suggesting counterviolence against whites to end white supremacy. But when I said she should stop being white, she concluded that she would have to kill herself. She said she would have to kill herself. And she only reported me to the head of the Pan African Studies Department. She didn't didn't report any other black people, um, and I, I just I think that's that that may be telling. Um, another thing is, so I'm, I'm wondering how can we identify the core group of white people um, and what they look like? How can we identify them from the group of white people that I would say are on the periphery? Or they're they're not exactly the core group. I would say the core group of white people are the ones that have the power to classify and declassify people as white. And, um, and I would just say, I mean, can we agree that the core group of white people are the ones that came from Europe and uh, after the last, last ice age, the ones that came from Europe and and are now occupying our land all over the world, the ones who have invaded, you know, and um, I would just say, Okay, so if we are to use counter who do we focus on? I mean, how do we how do we identify who do, if, if 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 you know just some some group of people say you know what we're going to use counter violence against these white people? Well, how do we know who to focus on visually? Because I, I'm I, I really think these white people are using using the visuals their their visual perception to identify. Who they're going to classify as white, and I, I think that we can pick up on, you know, even even more, uh, even more in depth how they're classifying um, each other, you know, um, what and and also um, so um, of the people who share these genetic and phenotypic characteristics, especially in terms of coloration, perhaps the last or two last types are what may be considered the core group of white people who have the most white power. And then I compiled a list of people in what I think is the order of coloration or or some coloration. So um, there's Robert Mugabe, who probably wouldn't be classified as white, Wesley Snipes, Chris Rock, Barack Obama, George Zimmerman, and Howard Stern and Anderson Cooper. I would say Anderson Cooper may be, Maybe the phenotypic, the coloration that is 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 the most white is the one that has the most white power. Then Howard Stern might be also, but Howard Stern I think is classified as a Jew, and then by some people who classify as white, he, he's sometimes white, sometimes he's not. Um, and then the, the last thing I just I would say is, I have concluded that these ice albinos, these white people. Are currently stuck in this existence by their survival instinct. And we need to help them lead this existence. We must grant them this necessity. I think it's very, very important. Uh, Thank you.
16: Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, If we have other folks, thanks for the clarification. Uh, if we have other folks uh, who have not shared at all, please do not wait until the last minute. 641-715-3640. Decode 564 pounds Press star six if you would like to participate. Star six one if you want to get through the process. Star six one. Uh, I think Noel Ignatiev. One of our uh, guests from way back, like way, way back, 2009, I think that was uh, the main part of his uh, stance, quote-unquote race trader. I think that used to be his website. Sometimes it works, sometimes it does not if you want to visit the website, but that was kind of his core theme, white people need to stop being white. I think he even talked about that uh, when he was a guest on the program. You can go back in the archives, summer of 2009, it's been – seven years eight years excuse me it's been eight years uh since he was on the pro in fact he was on the program the day of michael jackson's funeral i think those events were simultaneous anyone that we've missed completely uh folks who dialed in with a hand up that we have not heard from at all can i be heard yes sir
28: oh, yes thank you very much sir greetings to gus the host the listeners and callers. Um, The the first start out uh, with the gentleman that just spoke. um, A lot of the questions he was asking is very thought-provoking. I would have to think on those. Um, uh, Just to come up with what my response would be, to give an accurate response. But uh, as far as the audio segment, I think it was the uh, part where I think it was a, a famous singer, a musician from uh, back in the day, that caller that called up, I guess he said he was like 80 or 85 or something. And, you know, like as as what was said before, just a constant uh, denial that racism wasn't a problem then and now, um, you know, saying, well, I don't care if they're black, purple or polka dot green or whatever, um, imaginary colors he came up with, you know, it's very interesting how they can just, how they can just constantly deny that that existed. Um, and then one part of it where it was interesting how they said, uh, somebody was describing, I guess, some kind of image talking about her jawline or something like that, or the shape of her chin uh, going in descriptive detail, about how they thought that she was uh, uh, beautiful or something and how the beauty standard was uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white women uh, and how, quote-unquote, Americans. Okay, so that was way too abstract because back then they were very clear about who is white and who is non-white or, you know, the term colored or Negro. So I don't know what what was meant by Americans. Uh, You should have just said uh, white people, or at least white Americans. Um, One last thing was, or two things was, I know uh, people have talked about the Confederate flag. There's another flag that I've been seeing down here uh, in Florida. Um, It's called, it says, don't tread on me. It's a yellow flag, and it's got like a snake on it or something. It's something else. I couldn't remember what it was, but I constantly see that flag along with the uh, red, white, and blue Confederate flag. And I mentioned that to go into this article or this report that's come up down here in Alachua County. Um, Our NAACP head president, uh, Evelyn Fox, a victim of racism she woke up to a to a confederate flag in her front yard. I think it was uh, maybe like a little after 4th of July, I think like Wednesday or Thursday. So she was saying how it, it hasn't only been that, it, that has occurred or that sense of racism. She said that she's been getting death threats. And she said the one that, um, that made her report it to the police was, she got a call at like one ten a.m. like one in the morning, and the guy was saying that you know we're going to kill your black ass and you know the, the uh, suspected um, race soldier said that he was a KKK or something like that, and you know she said she reported it to the police and the FBI, so um, I didn't I didn't notice that it was a Report here locally. I had to look hourly to like Jacksonville or something. Uh, So other than that, that's pretty much all I have. And um, just wanted to know if has anybody heard of that "Don't Tread on Me" flag? It's a yellow flag, and that's that's all I have for now. Uh,
16: The "Don't Tread on Well One." Did we miss anybody? Uh, Anyone who dialed in with a hand up that we missed completely? Anybody that we missed totally? uh, Princess, thank you for not waiting until the last five minutes. Good to hear from you.
29: Uh, I was just getting off work, like literally. I just got out of work. Um, I heard the tail end of uh, the caller uh, was talking about, I guess, the flag. Uh I am uh, familiar with that flag because I see it a lot down here where I'm at in central Florida. Um, I think I had shared a number of years ago uh, when, um, I guess, after Obama had gotten elect- elected, uh, I saw a lot of white people, a lot, a lot of white males in particular, wearing the, a shirt um, that had stated men have guns don't. Uh, and uh but yeah, I'm I, I've seen that uh flag before, uh, as well as, you know, some of the shirts that they wear. Uh but I also if it's okay with Gus. I because it's it's real hard. it's been real hard for me to call on Thursdays for workplace racism. Is it all right if I can discuss a few things that have happened and offer some advice to one of the callers.
16: Proceed. Always welcome.
29: Okay. Well, uh, within the last uh, week, I haven't met with the uh, person for corporate uh, since our last meeting, Uh, but there have been some, I guess you could say, immediate changes. Uh, The white uh, male that has been giving me a lot of problems here, uh, he was, uh, without any uh, explanation, he was made to leave, and so they located to he- located him to another store, but the thing about it was is that I had been, tra- you know, trying to get a transfer to another store completely out of the district, and they were basically trying to block me from that and offer me a, a position where I was just floating. In other words, I was basically be demoting myself to a lesser position and having to, you know, fight to get hours. So when that didn't uh, fall through, they brought in another assistant uh, store manager at this location, and because uh, there had been changes in the pay scale, they're no longer on salary. So they needed to be able to boot out another hourly employee in order to, you know, take that assistant store manager into our store. So overall, uh, they I guess they're doing things behind the scenes. I did find out that the uh, district manager that I have this complaint against, he visited the store this morning. And he does this a lot because I hardly ever get to see him in person while I'm there working. He either is there when, I, before I get into work, or after I, so it's kind of like a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, action that's going on. Um, um, I don't count it as a victory. I, I'm just, you know, going through the process of, you know, what Mr. Fuller told me as far as, you know, I shouldn't have to worry about saying too much of anything right now. I'm just going through the motions of, you know, them, you know. Giving me due process and going along with the investigation. But I did want to offer some advice to, I guess it was a female caller uh, that was having a bit of trouble out in Tennessee uh, with a, uh, uh, seems like a very intense workplace uh, uh, racism episode. I would just say that, you know, when I was going through a lot of stuff um, after I left Comcast a few years ago or when I got fired and retaliated again, um, I would just offer her the advice of, or any any of us, like, really, just because uh, it just sounded like uh, the whole time while she was talking, she she was really up under some serious stress, and I think that gets overlooked a lot. We don't really understand the daily toll it is, and it's almost as if, like, I know she was listening to everybody's advice, uh, but I just hope everybody understands that having to go through that type of, uh, 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 you know, retaliation and racism and stuff, it, it does take a mental and physical toll on you. The one thing I did start doing that really, really helped me out was I just start recording. And I know, like in the beginning, because I wasn't sure about how I was going to record or anything, uh, you know, I'm not worried about whether it's state laws and stuff like that because even if I have to go and, you know, transfer information back to where I write it on pen and paper, at least I actually have a recording. So that way, you know, if it's certain things or if you're able to get in a position to report a particular act or a particular event, um, maybe that would be something that she would want to get into doing more. Um, so that way she doesn't have to worry about, uh, oh, i got to take a note here, or this, that, and other. Now it's like certain times of day when I know something is about to happen or uh I want to capture a certain procedure not being followed. I'll whip out my phone because I'm allowed to have my phone being in in management and just put on my recorder. And so that way, you know, she's not having to constantly uh, remind herself about taking notes. I mean, although, still, take your notes. I will also advise her do not take notes in front of them. Uh, that was a mistake I did in the beginning. Um, either when you're on break or when you're at home, you should take any notes or documentation. Do it in it. Doing stuff like that in front of them uh, tends to get them upset even more. And um, but I, I just uh, wish her the best, and I hope. Uh, I I don't know, I just heard her for the first time, so anybody that's in that area of um, the world, Tennessee, that could give her any assistance or or something, I mean, as far as, I don't know, because that sounded like a very serious uh, situation. I know I had a very uh, serious situation um, where, you know, I I had, you know, my blood pressure had... At 216 over 30 at the time when I was going through my incident, and um, I had called Mr. Fuller while it was going on, and they had called uh, EMS, and I had to be taken to the hospital. So I just hope that she's okay, and um, we just really take into consideration when you're going through stuff like this on the job that it, it really does take a toll. And not to get mad at the victims if they're not following through on certain things, because it's very draining having to constantly fight mentally and physically. And I'll mute my mic.
16: Thank you. uh, Thank you a lot, Princess, for reminding us of that. She was a first-time caller, too. That was... um, I think all of us uh, did not recognize her. It was our first time hearing from her because she had never called before. But uh, the caller, black female, oh, okay. in Tennessee, where she was, uh, she was saying that they had like slashed her tire and put a dent in her vehicle. Like she, I think she mentioned several different attacks, major attacks against, violent attacks against uh, her personal property. Uh, And I think poured uh, like oil on her tools and just, you know, constant uh, harassment. She said it had driven her blood pressure up and uh, she was taking the stress out uh, on others like her family and such uh, at home. And she said this was in like a really small town uh, in Tennessee and they have their own private security uh, at the plant. So they're not calling the police in this town when these uh, situations, these acts of terrorism were happening. Uh, they were just delegating to the local plant uh, security, company security. Uh, so, yeah, I, I agree. Very serious uh, situation. Should be taken seriously, and hopefully uh, we can, you know, check in. She'll uh, let us know how things are going. And I'm hoping she got some time off. I think several folks encouraged her to see if she could get some time away uh, for some self-care. I think that is always uh, a tremendous advice uh, to just get some – some. sometimes you just need a moment to kind of uh, – collect your thoughts. Uh, The system of white supremacy, when you are just being constantly terrorized, it's difficult to even think uh, in a constructive manner about what's happening to you and to plan how you want to respond. So sometimes that time off is just to allow you to get a moment to compose your thoughts and figure out the best way to move forward. Uh, Do we have uh, anyone that we missed completely? Anybody have a hand up that uh, we have not heard from at all? Okay, I will assume that we got we got everybody. We have less than uh, a half hour, so if anybody uh, has commentary, uh, something you think you want to share or ask about, uh, please do not wait uh, until the last minute. Go ahead and uh, get a hand up. Um, We had the question about the flag, I think, uh, the question about how do you identify the core group uh, of most powerful whites uh, for counterviolence purposes or what have you. How do you uh correctly identify them. Uh I think some might have even been another question that was posed and I think even one other person said that they did have additional commentary. So if we got everybody, if folks have additional commentary, feel free. Uh, right, can, I, can yes. I be heard? Uh go ahead, retire Fire Friday. We'll just get everybody in the row.
24: Yes, sir. I I have some uh additional information on the uh don't tread on me flag if uh you and everybody wanted to uh, hear some of it proceed uh yes uh it uh it's pretty old i've i've heard about it before but I never really didn't pay it, pay that much attention to it but uh it's it's pretty old it goes back to the uh 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 when uh, uh the two white factions and or gangsters were fighting against one another. And uh the snake is symbolic because in the uh the thirteen uh plantations, I mean uh thirteen colonies, uh, uh the uh the uh the snake was prevalent. The rattlesnake was prevalent in in those areas, uh so it was used as a symbol of something deadly. Uh and the idea is to don't tread on me and or don't step on me or I will harm you. Uh, It's used today uh, uh, also primarily by the uh, infamous Tea Party. So basically, the way I look at it, in short, uh, it's code, it's symbolic, symbolism and and, and code for uh, racist white people uh, just to uh, flaunt around and uh, and uh show some symb- symbolic uh, uh form of racism uh that uh sometimes they actually do act out not not sometimes but uh, uh most times act out uh in different ways and the flag just symbolizes that that's basically what it is thank you uh what what was, what, was, what was the question the other question
16: uh, i think how to how would we go about identifying the most powerful uh core whites who are responsible for doing the classifying and what have you how, uh how would uh, one go
24: about identifying them i think that was one of the questions posed well when when a, a, a yellow caution light comes on in my head when i hear the word core whites uh i really don't know what that means <laughs> uh uh i you talking to a dumb uh victim of racism, Uh, I just identify that uh, from the standpoint, you're either white or you're not white. And uh, if you're white, uh, you are probably practicing racism uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I uh, try to keep it simple. Uh, But uh, anyway, that's just my thoughts on, on that. Thank you.
16: I heard someone speak up simultaneously with retired firefighter. Maybe they got this. Yes sir.
22: Awesome. Uh this is uh, Ken Steele yet again and um I just wanted to um, I just wanted to uh bring some attention to um a lot of What I'm seeing uh, lately is um, anti blackness being um, portrayed or put out as, uh, I guess, constructive um, entertainment for victims of racism, white supremacy. Uh, You know, I just want to caution the listeners um, that look there are there seems to be a number of um, uh, media outlets that are being exploited by other victims and they're uh, promoting a lot of these uh, anti-black images in the media I, I believe there was a video game that was released, uh, a video game app that's uh, um anti-black um, and it's being I guess uh, portrayed as constructive. A lot of the people that I see that are promoting this game are also utilizing um, lines from um, Neely Fuller's work to uh, justify um, this content. And I just wanted to say that um, from what I can tell it is 100% against everything that is uh, um, discussed and uh, suggested in the United Independent Compensatory Code. Um,
16: what lines are they using specifically to uh, justify? What lines are they saying, hey, this, this fits this part of Mr. Fuller's uh, code?
22: Um, I heard I heard some people saying that, uh, that this um, work was uh, – it is constructive and it is uh, um, producing justice Um, because it is going against um, uh, individual uh, victims of racism that uh, they classify to be um, a word that I believe is banned on this broadcast. So, uh, you know, they're also saying that uh, the person who created this uh, app is quote-unquote boys with Neal Fuller, and I hear this line a lot used by this crowd. Um, Neely Fuller is my boy, you know, um, or he is the homie. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, and then I hear the, the, you know, phrase code of conduct being associated with this. And, um, I just believe that, uh, you know, there is just a serious misappropriation of, uh, the teachings of Milly Fuller going on, and some of these people that are um, using um, these teachings are um, engaging in uh, what I've been able to determine um, are uh, is uh, anti-black activity, and they're using um, you know their uh, loose affiliation with Milly Fuller to uh, go ahead and justify this. And again, they're using lines like produce justice and code of conduct. Um, in in relation to this. And it just seems to be a trend I've noticed of um, black entertainers or black people, uh, you know, putting out imagery uh, uh, under the guise of being constructive uh, that is determinately anti-black. I mean, um, a week out and I'm seeing uh, uh, Jay-Z's J-Bone or or J-Bo character who looks a lot like uh, the, the racist depictions of black people from the 1930s, uh, from between the 1920s uh, through 30s, uh, through 50s, and it's just, uh, you know, it's now being used as kind of like a symbol for, for him, and I'm seeing the image being propagated a lot more, and I've seen victims of racism being convinced that this is a good thing, that this is constructive, that this is powerful, And informative and uh, it's very disturbing and I I fear that the same thing with these images and these phrases and these words is going to be done with uh, with what has been done with uh, the n-word where they've used us to kind of reintroduce uh, that into our um, societal lexicon and they're using us as an excuse to now uh, have it in polite discussion and uh it's um it's very disturbing oh and one more thing the uh, suspected white supremacist bill maher is uh as uh, i guess um, um gone after another group of uh, victims of racism uh with his words and uh and again black people were and black entertainers were used to make this course of behavior for bill maher um Socially acceptable, um, so please be very, very wary of the ways that these racists are employing victims of racism to go ahead and uh, push their agenda to make it so that they are more able to uh, disrespect us with words in in what is a being polite conversation. And uh, be be mindful that this is I don't think that this is constructive. Um, but they are painting it as such or framing it as such and I will mute my mind.
16: no one of mr. Fuller's favorite uh, phrases uh I think the phrase he probably says the most uh, for a reason follow the logic uh, and I think he says that one more than all the other phrases that he's known for saying uh, because that one is most important uh, being able to think Uh, And just make observations and come to logical conclusions. Uh, So when you see any sort of content, uh, people might be saying, because racists do that a lot. Oh, yeah, this is constructive. This is going to end racism. All we need to do is legalize all drugs, and this will solve all of black people's problems forever. They do that sort of thing all the time, and you have to apply the same formula. Use logic. And see now, do I really think this is going to help Black people? This is, you know, really the type of thing that we need more of. This is going to help us solve our problems and take us where we need to go. Follow the logic. Other folks had uh, commentary, questions, uh, suggestions. They wanted to make sure we get in. We are. uh, Guess we have less than. I think that was Thompson. Yes, Thompson, New York. Go ahead.
23: Thank you, Gosh. Um... Uh, I just wanted to first um, do you uh, acknowledge me. I've been on eating your your Atlanta black Star work, and it's um absolutely great. And I just wanted to say, um, you've been doing a great job writing. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge you for that. Um, and the the, the, the piece you did on the Atlanta, Atlanta um child murders and comparing it to the um DC um women being um missing um. You know, I, I, well, I have to report you back to something else. I'll just send you an email.
20: Um,
23: well, I, as far as I feel about the snake flag, the yellow flag, I've been seeing it since the Tea Party started. And um, I've concluded that presently um, we live under the most racist flag in the world, the American flag. So yeah, all the other flags don't really matter as long as we still have to stand up and pledge to that. You know, they force our kids to do it in school, et cetera. Then, um, you know, what else? I mean, what does the yellow, the American flag is everywhere. It's everywhere. And we were slaves under that flag. We was um, emancipated under that flag and still treated like um, second-class citizens to this day under that flag. So, you know, I mean, what does the, what does the yellow flag really matter as long as we are forced? to um, have allegiance to this American flag. Um, you know, the Kim Still story, it made me so um happy that when I was very young, around eight or nine, I had a terrible experience with white people um at a at a camp and um therefore I never liked them and I always felt like they didn't like me. So I never would have, you know, but never been in a situation like that but to hear his story about what, you know, Hanging out with white people, and, I mean, just terrible. Um, I just wanted to make a comment on the shootings. Um, Someone spoke about the shootings in Chicago, and, um, you know, here in, um, I work at the hospital. We had 10, two days um, that weekend. It's been quite a few shootings, um, but these um, young boys come to the hospital, they're shocked. Um, They want to Instagram it. You know, they, they wanna act like they survived something. Um, they wanna threaten the people who shot them. And um, you know, one thing I could say coming from the nineties, uh, nine times out of ten when people got shot, they knew exactly who shot them. And when I see a hundred people getting shot in Chicago and forced to see murders, so that meant eighty plus people got shot and none of them are saying white people shot me. You know, it just leads me to believe that this is Something that's really going on in our community with each other the self hatred that we have for one another um i mean I, I from what I see, these kids know exactly who shot them i mean they they threaten them you know wait until I get out of here um their cell phones just being used as evidence to arrest the people who did it i mean it, it's it's um, i just don't don't know. Um, if if there's really um, black people, I think that we have to take ownership to this ourselves, you know, as as black people, as black adults who live in these cities, I mean, we need to somehow organize or or try to figure out a way, because these young kids think it's a game. It's not even, um, the consequences aren't even real to them until it happens, you know, and um, even when it happens, they, they it's just something they want to post. I mean, it's not. I don't know. I just find it real hard to believe that 100 something people got shot. And none of them are saying that, yeah, the person that shot me was white, you know. And I mean, my line.
16: Certainly valid. Anti blackness is real. Certainly. Uh... Hmm. racists have done a phenomenal job uh they have been phenomenally successful uh promoting the anti-blackness uh other folks uh comments they wanted to make sure they get in uh last 10 minutes i did want to say about that venus uh williams uh, situation i think someone had touched on that earlier and we talked about it briefly uh last week i think they released a uh, report within the last 24 hours or so that she made a lawful uh, she was lawfully entering the intersection where this accident allegedly happened, where these <clears throat> suspected racists are trying to sue her. Uh, I think where one of the old uh, crotchety whites in the vehicle died uh, in this accident, or sometime after the accident, they're trying to say it was somehow connected, and she killed him, and she was you know driving all reckless. Uh, but they said, yeah, she was driving lawfully. When I saw that, I said, well, wait a minute. How did the re- initial report even begin? that she had done something wrong because it was i think about this time last week it was that she had done something wrong uh that she had she had either was speeding through the intersection or made an illegal turn or uh didn't you know give the right away that she had done something wrong uh she had done something unlawful uh with her motor vehicle that caused all this and then to come out today and say no That is not true. There's still a pending investigation, and she made a lawful turn. That's the sort of thing that I say, no, that whites don't get benefit of the doubt ever. That is huge, particularly if you have a lawsuit where they talk about – I think the word they'll use is uh, you are prejudicing people's opinions about this case and how they're going to think about it. That is huge, and I think this was in the middle of – Wimbledon like he's competing professionally to win a big tournament that's millions of dollars uh, and what have she's won that tournament I think four or five times uh, and to be putting out misinformation uh, in the paper I just uh, and that's that's the sort of thing that they have a, that racists have a long history of doing to black people just thought that was important uh, and the Klan marching armed in uh, Virginia I think on this very day I thought that was important as well uh, other other commentary folks had uh-huh. that, I heard uh, both of you. Just pick one. We'll get both of you. We'll make sure everybody gets you know a chance. All
27: right.
25: Okay, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Um. Uh, I'm pretty sure I reiterate this. I'm from Chicago, and I've also said the
12: statistics
25: uh, for unsolved murders in Chicago from last year was 75%. Uh, that is a troubling number. Uh, this is not statistics that I've made up. This is statistics from the Chicago Police Department. Uh, and even in the sense of when these, young, when these young black men are being shot and they know who they are, the police also know who they are, but they don't do anything about it. I mean, they can arrest anybody uh, who shoots another black man, but in a sense they don't want to because they want to continue the cycle so uh it's still dominated by a system of white supremacy because police will not do anything against these uh against uh those who shoot uh black black men uh whether they be black whether they be white police officers so nobody gets arrested for shooting black men so uh that's my two cents
24: uh well i i was i was just uh going to say that's what i was uh reporting on with uh, venus williams because i saw the uh i saw the uh, video also and on top of it the the white people ran into her uh according to the video they actually ran into her and I'm, i'm thinking well why this video didn't come out come out before she was accused of being at fault of the accident but uh uh it still doesn't mean uh that uh she is uh not totally out of the uh the lawsuit uh because no charges ever was brought up against her but she still she still is under that uh the uh the uh the, the, the lawsuit uh but it does make it a, more difficult uh for these greedy white people to uh being able to get any money uh from her because of that because of that uh that that uh audio, that visual uh tape but but you know how that goes as far as uh tapes it does doesn't make a difference if white people decide that they want to get some money out of uh out of that, that young lady. The
16: uh Calder who was uh, gracious Yielded the floor a moment ago. Did you uh, want to get your commentary in? Yes.
26: Yeah. Uh, thanks, Dustin. Um, it's a voice. The voice. It's, yeah, I just wanted to um, – the, the segment about um, the adoption, and um, and it, it brought me into the mind because, you know, the young scholar from the Bay made a great point. And, you know, when you look at it, um, there was a report that just came out the other day I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, with um, the black uh, child. I, I think it was a caseworker, and she was bringing a white child to her father on the airlines, and she got kicked off because they um, they were questioning her about why was this – why are you with this white child? Like, And she had to prove that I'm a caseworker. The reason I'm with this white child is because I'm bringing her to her father, and I find that very – Telltelling them because when we see, when, or when people see white people with black children, it's like people are desensitized to the, mas- the, the racial mixing that they just let them, you know, just walk anywhere with them. Like, oh, okay, nah, they're probably supposed to be with that black child. But when it's the opposite, it's like we get stopped. Hey, what are you doing? Where are you going? What, what's the destination? And it wasn't like that back in the days. You know, when we used to see, whites with black children we thought they were kidnapping and we would bring it to their attention but now they're so desensitized to the racial mixing that we just allow them to go and then when they see us with their children it's always at alert always at alert so I just wanted to bring that up because I didn't know if anybody else heard about that but I just wanted to add that in before we, we left the air thanks
16: I had not heard about that uh, incident but it, it does remind me we way back uh, going down the archives uh, from 2009 we had a black male in the program where his family he had foster parents in his family and I believe it's his mother-in-law she uh, adopted this white child small white girl she was like six and so this younger family they would hang out with her all the time because they had children that were her age so he this is a black male in his like 30s young guy and he would routinely be with this little six-year-old white girl and he said oh man people would stop him grill him what are you doing where are you going urine sample fingerprints like oh man he said it was just a constant assault as though you are not you are not supposed to be with this little white girl uh something you know is amiss here maybe even criminal um but and, and i also wanted to add the difference in terms of that response, why the incident that you're talking about and the guests that we had on the program, the reason that white people can respond like that is because they have power. They can get, you know, enforcement officials and whomever or just random whites on the block uh to come out and handle that situation quickly, violently and have done so. Black people do not have that sort of power to do anything. White people can come in. I was just rereading Malcolm X's autobiography where he talked about how social services thoroughly destroyed his family. White people can come in and have done that, Uh, come in and, you know, breaking apart whole families at will. Uh, They can not just walk off with one of your children all of your children uh and it's nothing that you or any of the black people in this whole state can do about it. It's a substantial difference uh in terms of power to respond when you see something like that that you think is incorrect. uh white people have much more power right now to do something about that uh other folks have final comments
26: thank you thank you for that explanation. I appreciate it mm-hmm. Judge, final, right? one, more
12: thing. one
23: more thing I wanted to say. Um, something else that I see quite often uh, at the workplace is um black mental illness. And I'm talking about um, you know, people who are obviously mentally ill. Um, you know. And um one thing I've noticed in speaking to some people, um, especially when I'm working in the ER and they're being, you know, admitted and I'm able to maybe get into a conversation if they're you know, able to have a conversation. Uh, a lot of them have been to prison before. And uh, after watching that Khalif Browder story, when I saw how um, insane um, the solitary confinement made people, I really wondered if there's a correlation between the high levels of black mental illness that I see, and I'm sure it's probably just as prevalent everywhere else, and um, their incarceration.
24: Um, I just wondered and I'm in my line, Thank you, Gus. Great. Did anybody Oh sorry. Did anybody I was just Yeah, I was just gonna say, did anybody uh hear uh hear about the story about the uh Oklahoma uh suspected race soldier that shot to death uh his uh white uh, uh daughter's uh uh, "Quote unquote black boyfriend." Knew the cowbell incident had to go.
16: <laughs> had to get that one in before we <laughs> ended. I did. I did hear about that uh, If it's the one that I'm thinking, I think he's getting a retrial. I think this is maybe the second yeah. yeah. time uh, around where they just can't seem to uh, convict uh this good old white oklahoma guy uh for for killing this uh this black male I did see about that earlier uh this week i don't I don't remember when the retrial is, but that'll be one of you we will
24: have an opportunity to focus well on. it's not un it's not unusual but uh I think I saw a picture of of uh the the boyfriend the boyfriend looked looked like a white person to me i don't know I don't know if anybody else saw a picture. Uh, uh of of this uh this person. Uh but uh I I accept it. If if he's a if he's a a, a quote unquote black person, you know, uh non white victim of racist white service, I, I would I, I would uh you know wouldn't argue with it, but uh, he sure <laughs> looks like a white person. You know, but uh then again, you know, white people know. <laughs> they the one who made it up, so but uh I I, would, yeah. I was just wondering about that. I think someone posted a,
16: the photograph on my Facebook page within the last day or so. If you look on uh, my Facebook page for Gusty Renegade, if you scroll down a little bit, you should see a picture of the officer who's been charged. Uh, and it's going to have his retrial uh, and the victim as well. Uh, he definitely, the victim from my recollection, he definitely did not look like Robert Mugabe or Wesley Snipes. Uh, you oh, remember, right. You're, you're, you're right. I don't think he would pass as their doppelganger or twin <laughs> at all. Not even
24: close. But he don't even look like Mr. Obama. <laughs> right,
16: right, right. You have to look for yourself, though, and see. They they might even have multiple photos because sometimes, you know, it depends on the lighting yeah. and which you see and all that right. stuff. So, you know, see if they got multiple uh, photos. so You can check them out uh, and, and come to a conclusion that you uh, think, again, following logic seems like it's based on evidence and, and you know, has some sense to it. Uh, we did our three. Man, we will be back. I moved. I mentioned, right, that uh, Crystal Tyler, uh, she asked to come back and speak with us. So She originally picked Monday we were going to do the program, and then she wrote back within, like, 24, 48 hours and said that she, uh, if we did it on Monday, as she originally agreed to, uh, that she would have to step away for 20 minutes and then rejoin us for the remainder of the program. So I said that, you know, does not make sense. Uh, We should just pick a different day when you can be with us uninterrupted. So we're going to do Tuesday uh, of this week. Crystal, Tyler. The Weep Money uh, will be back with us on Tuesday. I think she even said she's in Washington State now with Augustine, uh, presumably her black crackhead husband and their daughter. Uh, but that should be Tuesday, July 11th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Um I might, if you want to, because I know we had people who wanted to read The, re- uh, the Wheat Money, people who heard uh, her broadcast in the archives where she said she'd be willing to give the book to black people for free if they wanted to read it. And I think there were some people who contacted me. They wanted a free copy of the book, and I had some struggles, and she's coming back. If you want to read the book in advance like for preparation, feel free. I re- it is interesting. It does have constructive material in it. Like, it has a lot of great Washington state information about racism, white supremacy. So if you're a black person, non-white person, you live in Washington state, might be a good one to have in your archives. I I learned quite a bit uh, about Washington state history of racism, but if you want her book, uh, let me know. I can contact her and she will probably give it to me for free so I can pass it along if you want to read to prep. But Crystal Tyler, looking forward this Tuesday. Uh, If you have uh, questions, gripes, guest suggestions, Drop an email untiljustice at gmail dot com. Uh, again, thanks to everyone who tuned in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. Uh, remain safe. Glad everyone made it safely through July Fourth. But man, the system of white supremacy—it takes an immense toll on our health and well-being. Again, Nelson Ellis dies at thirty-nine. Thirty-nine. Racism, white supremacy is very serious. Uh, And in that same way of thinking, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. The incident uh, that happened in Greece, uh, and there are too many uh, of these instances, both from our personal uh, experience. Man, racists, they do a lot of damage anyway. We do not need to help them uh, by being intoxicated where we can't really think, where we can't make the best decisions to keep ourselves safe uh, and certainly not to respond adequately uh, if we have to converse have any sort of conversation with a white person race soldier badge or no uh, you do not want to be in the presence of white people who are under the influence it is extra I'd say that consistently in five minutes in five minutes it can go from totally calm to I think my life is in danger another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you're so brainwashed
18: i'm a victim no brother you
15: a
16: victim
14: uh,
15: i'm up. a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my condition mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been
24: conditioned <laughs>